Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 34. Scarcity of Morals and Whiskey. Slave-girl market report. Commercial morality at a discount. The slandered dogs of Constantinople. Questionable delights of newspaperdom in Turkey. Ingenious Italian journalism. No more Turkish lunches desired. The Turkish bath fraud. The Nargile fraud. Jack planed by a native. The Turkish coffee fraud. Mosques are plenty, churches are plenty, graveyards are plenty, but morals and whiskey are scarce. The Koran does not permit Mohammedans to drink. Their natural instincts do not permit them to be moral. They say the Sultan has eight hundred wives. This almost amounts to bigamy. It makes our cheeks burn with shame to see such a thing permitted here in Turkey. We do not mind it so much in Salt Lake, however. Circassian and Georgian girls are still sold in Constantinople by their parents, but not publicly. The great slave marts we have all read so much about, where tender young girls were stripped for inspection, and criticized and discussed just as if they were horses at an agricultural fair, no longer exist. The exhibition and the sales are private now. Stocks are up, just at present partly because of a brisk demand created by the recent return of the Sultan's suite from the courts of Europe, partly on account of an unusual abundance of breadstuffs which leaves holders untortured by hunger and enables them to hold back for high prices, and partly because buyers are too weak to bear the market, while sellers are amply prepared to bullet. Under these circumstances, if the American metropolitan newspapers were published here in Constantinople, their next commercial report would read about as follows, I suppose. Slave Girl Market Report Best Brand Circassians, Crop of 1850, L200, 1852, L250, 1854, L300. Best Brands Georgian, None in Market. Second quality, 1851, L-180. Nineteen fair to middling Wallachian girls offered at L-130 at 150, but no takers. Sixteen prime A, one sold in small lots to close out, terms private. Sales of one lot Circassians, prime to good, 1852 to 1854, at L-240, at 242, buyer 30. One forty-niner, damaged, at L-23, seller, ten, no deposit. Several Georgians, fancy brands, 1852, changed hands to fill orders. The Georgians now on hand are mostly last year's crop, which was unusually poor. The new crop is a little backward, but will be coming in shortly. As regards its quantity and quality, the accounts are most encouraging. 
In this connection we can safely say also that the new crop of Circassians is looking extremely well. His Majesty the Sultan has already sent in large orders for his new harem, which will be finished within a fortnight, and this has naturally strengthened the market, and given Circassian stock a strong upward tendency. Taking advantage of the inflated market, many of our shrewdest operators are selling short. There are hints of a corner on Wallachians. There is nothing new in Nubians. Slow sale. Eunuchs, none offering. However, large cargoes are expected from Egypt to-day. I think the above would be about the style of the commercial report. Prices are pretty high now, and holders firm. But two or three years ago, parents in a starving condition brought their young daughters down here and sold them for even twenty and thirty dollars, when they could do no better, simply to save themselves and the girls from dying of want. It is sad to think of so distressing a thing as this, and I, for one, am sincerely glad the prices are up again. Commercial morals especially are bad. There is no gain saying that. Greek. Turkish and Armenian morals consist only in attending church regularly on the appointed Sabbaths, and in breaking the Ten Commandments all the balance of the week. It comes natural to them to lie and cheat in the first place, and then they go on and improve on nature until they arrive at perfection. In recommending his son to a merchant as a valuable salesman, the father does not say he is a nice, moral, upright boy, and goes to Sunday school, and is honest, but he says, this boy is worth his weight in broad pieces of a hundred, for, behold, he will cheat whomever hath dealings with him, and from Euxine to the waters of Marmora there abideth not so gifted a liar. How is that for a recommendation? The missionaries tell me that they hear enconiums like that passed upon people every day. They say of a person they admire, Ah, he is a charming swindler, and a most exquisite liar. Everybody lies and cheats, everybody who is in business at any rate. Even foreigners soon have to come down to the custom of the country, and they do not buy and sell long in Constantinople till they lie and cheat like a Greek. I say like a Greek, because the Greeks are called the worst transgressors in this line. Several Americans long resident in Constantinople contend that most Greeks are pretty trustworthy, but few claim that the Greeks have any virtues that a man can discover, at least without a fire assay. I am half willing to believe that the celebrated dogs of Constantinople have been misrepresented, slandered. I have always been led to suppose that they were so thick in the streets that they blocked the way, that they moved about in organized companies platoons and regiments, and took what they wanted by determined and ferocious assaults, and that at night they drowned all other sounds with their terrible howlings. The dogs I see here cannot be those I have read of. I find them everywhere, but not in strong force. The most I have found together has been about ten or twenty, and night or day a fair proportion of them were sound asleep. Those that were not asleep always looked as if they wanted to be. I never saw such utterly wretched, starving, sad-visaged, broken-hearted-looking curs in my life. It seemed a grim satire to accuse such brutes as these of taking things by force of arms. They hardly seemed to have strength enough or ambition enough to walk across the street. I do not know that I have seen one walk that far yet. 
They are mangy and bruised and mutilated, and often you see one with the hair singed off him in such wide and well-defined tracks that he looks like a map of the new territories. They are the sorriest beasts that breathe, the most abject, the most pitiful. In their faces is a settled expression of melancholy, an air of hopeless despondency. The hairless patches on a scalded dog are preferred by the fleas of Constantinople to a wider range on a healthier dog, and the exposed places suit the fleas exactly. I saw a dog of this kind start to nibble at a flea. A fly attracted his attention, and he made a snatch at him. The flea called for him once more, and that forever unsettled him. He looked sadly at his flea pasture, then sadly looked at his bald spot. Then he heaved a sigh, and dropped his head resignedly upon his paws. He was not equal to the situation. The dogs sleep in the streets all over the city. From one end of the street to the other, I suppose they will average about eight or ten to a block. Sometimes, of course, there are fifteen or twenty to a block. They do not belong to anybody, and they seem to have no close personal friendships among each other. But they district the city themselves, and the dogs of each district, whether it be half a block in extent or ten blocks, have to remain within its bounds. Woe to a dog if he crosses the line! His neighbors would snatch the balance of his hair off in a second. So it is said. But they don't look it. They sleep in the streets these days. They are my compass, my guide. When I see the dogs sleep placidly on, while men, sheep, geese, and all moving things turn out and go around them, I know I am not in the great street where the hotel is, and must go further. In the Grand Rue the dogs have a sort of air of being on the lookout, an air born of being obliged to get out of the way of many carriages every day, and that expression one recognizes in a moment. It does not exist upon the face of any dog without the confines of that street. All others sleep placidly, and keep no watch. They would not move, though the Sultan himself passed by. In one narrow street, but none of them are wide, I saw three dogs lying coiled up about a foot or two apart. End to end they lay, and so they just bridged the street neatly from gutter to gutter. A drove of a hundred sheep came along. They stepped right over the dogs, the rear crowding the front, impatient to get on. The dogs looked lazily up, flinched a little when the impatient feet of the sheep touched their raw backs, sighed, and lay peacefully down again. No talk could be plainer than that. So some of the sheep jumped over them, and others scrambled between, occasionally chipping a leg with their sharp hoofs, and when the whole flock had made the trip, the dogs sneezed a little, in the cloud of dust, but never budged their bodies an inch. I thought I was lazy but I am a steam-engine compared to a Constantinople dog. But was not that a singular scene for a city of a million inhabitants? These dogs are the scavengers of the city. That is their official position, and a hard one it is. However, it is their protection. But for their usefulness in partially cleansing these terrible streets, they would not be tolerated long. They eat anything and everything that comes in their way from melon rinds and spoiled grapes, up through all the grades and species of dirt and refuse to their own dead friends and relatives, and yet they are always lean, always hungry, always despondent. The people are loath to kill them, do not kill them, in fact. The Turks have an innate antipathy to taking the life of any dumb animal, it is said, 
but they do worse. They hang and kick and stone and scald these wretched creatures to the very verge of death, and then leave them to live and suffer. Once a sultan proposed to kill off all the dogs here, and did begin the work, but the populace raised such a howl of horror about it that the massacre was stayed. After a while he proposed to remove them all to an island in the Sea of Marmora. No objection was offered, and a shipload or so was taken away. But when it came to be known that somehow or other the dogs never got to the island, but always fell overboard in the night and perished, another howl was raised, and the transportation scheme was dropped. So the dogs remain in peaceable possession of the streets. I do not say that they do not howl at night, nor that they do not attack people who have not a red fez on their heads. I only say that it would be mean for me to accuse them of these unseemly things who have not seen them do them with my own eyes, or heard them with my own ears. I was a little surprised to see Turks and Greeks playing newsboy right here in the mysterious land where the giants and genii of the Arabian Nights once dwelt where winged horses and hydra-headed dragons guarded enchanted castles, where princes and princesses flew through the air on carpets that obeyed a mystic talisman, where cities whose houses were made of precious stones sprang up in a night under the hand of the magician, and where busy marts were suddenly stricken with a spell, and each citizen lay or sat, or stood with weapon raised, or foot advanced, just as he was, speechless and motionless, till time had told a hundred years. It was curious to see newsboys selling papers in so dreamy a land as that. And, to say truly, it is comparatively a new thing here. The selling of newspapers had its birth in Constantinople about a year ago, and was a child of the Prussian and Austrian War. There is one paper published here in the English language, the Levant Herald, and there are generally a number of Greek and a few French papers rising and falling, struggling up and falling again. Newspapers are not popular with the Sultan's government. They do not understand journalism. The proverb says, The unknown is always great. To the court the newspaper is a mysterious and rascally institution. They know what a pestilence is, because they have one occasionally that thins the people out at the rate of two thousand a day, and they regard a newspaper as a mild form of pestilence. When it goes astray, they suppress it, pounce upon it without warning, and throttle it. When it don't go astray for a long time, they get suspicious, and throttle it anyhow, because they think it is hatching deviltry. Imagine the Grand Vizier, in solemn council with the magnates of the realm, spelling his way through the hated newspaper, and finally delivering his profound decision. This thing means mischief. It is too darkly, too suspiciously inoffensive. Suppress it. Warn the publisher that we cannot have this sort of thing. Put the editor in prison. The newspaper business has its inconveniences in Constantinople. Two Greek papers and one French one were suppressed here within a few days of each other. No victories of the Cretans are allowed to be printed. From time to time the Grand Vizier sends a notice to the various editors that the Cretan insurrection is entirely suppressed, and although that editor knows better, he still has to print the notice. The Levant Herald is too fond of speaking praisefully of Americans to be popular with the Sultan, who does not relish our sympathy with the Cretans, and therefore that paper has to be particularly circumspect in order to keep out of trouble. Once the editor, forgetting the official notice in his paper that the Cretans were crushed out, printed a letter of a very different tenor, from the American consul in Crete, 
and was fined two hundred and fifty dollars for it. Shortly he printed another from the same source, and was imprisoned three months for his pains. I think I could get the assistant editorship of the Levant Herald, but I am going to try to worry along without it. To suppress a paper here involves the ruin of the publisher, almost, but in Naples I think they speculate on misfortunes of that kind. Papers are suppressed there every day, and spring up the next day under a new name. During the ten days, or a fortnight we stayed there, one paper was murdered and resurrected twice. The newsboys are smart there, just as they are elsewhere. They take advantage of popular weaknesses. When they find they are not likely to sell out, they approach a citizen mysteriously and say in a low voice, "'Last copy, sir. Double price. Paper just been suppressed.' The man buys it, of course, and finds nothing in it. They do say—I do not vouch for it—but they do say that men sometimes print a vast edition of a paper, with a ferociously seditious article in it, distribute it quickly among the newsboys, and clear out till the government's indignation cools. It pays well. Confiscation don't amount to anything. The type and presses are not worth taking care of. There is only one English newspaper in Naples. It has seventy subscribers. The publisher is getting rich very deliberately, very deliberately indeed. I never shall want another Turkish lunch. The cooking apparatus was in the little lunch-room near the bazaar, and it was all open to the street. The cook was slovenly, and so was the table. And it had no cloth on it. The fellow took a mass of sausage-meat, and coated it round a wire, and laid it on a charcoal fire to cook. When it was done, he laid it aside, and a dog walked sadly in, and nipped it. He smelt it first, and probably recognized the remains of a friend. The cook took it away from him, and laid it before us. Jack said, "'I pass.' He plays euchre sometimes, and we all passed in turn. Then the cook baked a broad, flat, wheaten cake, greased it well with the sausage, and started towards us with it. It dropped in the dirt, and he picked it up and polished it on his breeches, and laid it before us. Jack said, "'I pass.' We all passed. He put some eggs in a frying-pan, and stood pensively prying slabs of meat from between his teeth with a fork. Then he used the fork to turn the eggs with, and brought them along. Jack said, "'Pass again.' all followed suit. We did not know what to do, and so we ordered a new ration of sausage. The cook got out his wire, apportioned a proper amount of sausage-meat, spat it on his hands, and fell to work. This time, with one accord, we all passed out. We paid and left. That is all I learned about Turkish lunches. A Turkish lunch is good, no doubt, but it has its little drawbacks. When I think how I have been swindled by books of Oriental travel, I want a tourist for breakfast. For years and years I have dreamed of wonders of the Turkish bath. For years and years I have promised myself that I would yet enjoy one. Many and many a time, in fancy, I have lain in the marble bath, and breathed the slumberous fragrance of eastern spices that filled the air, then passed through a weird and complicated system of pulling and hauling and drenching and scrubbing by a gang of naked savages who loomed vast and vaguely through the steaming mists, like demons, then rested for a while on a divan fit for a king, then passed through another complex ordeal, and one more fearful than the first, 
and finally, swathed in soft fabrics, been conveyed to a princely saloon and laid on a bed of eiderdown, where eunuchs, gorgeous of costume, fanned me while I drowsed and dreamed, or contentedly gazed at the rich hangings of the apartment, the soft carpets, the sumptuous furniture, the pictures, and drank delicious coffee, smoked the soothing nargali, and dropped, at last, into tranquil repose, lulled by sensuous odors from unseen censers, by the gentle influence of the nargali's Persian tobacco, and by the music of fountains that counterfeited the pattering of summer rain. That was the picture, just as I got it from incendiary books of travel. It was a poor, miserable imposture. The reality is no more like it than the five points are like the Garden of Eden. They received me in a great court, paved with marble slabs. Around it were broad galleries, one above another, carpeted with seedy matting, railed with unpainted balustrades, and furnished with huge rickety chairs, cushioned with rusty old mattresses, indented with impressions left by the forms of nine successive generations of men who had reposed upon them. The place was vast, naked, dreary, its court a barn, its galleries stalls for human horses. The cadaverous, half-nude varlets that served in the establishment had nothing of poetry in their appearance, nothing of romance, nothing of oriental splendor. They shed no entrancing odors. Just the contrary. Their hungry eyes and their lank forms continually suggested one glaring, unsentimental fact. They wanted what they term in California a square meal. I went into one of the racks and undressed. An unclean starveling wrapped a gaudy tablecloth about his loins, and hung a white rag over my shoulders. If I had had a tub then, it would have come natural to me to take in washing. I was then conducted downstairs into the wet, slippery court, and the first things that attracted my attention were my heels. My fall excited no comment. They expected it, no doubt. It belonged in the list of softening, sensuous influences peculiar to this home of Eastern luxury. It was softening enough, certainly, but its application was not happy. They now gave me a pair of wooden clogs, benches in miniature, with leather straps over them to confine my feet, which they would have done, only I do not wear number thirteens. These things dangled uncomfortably by the straps when I lifted up my feet, and came down in awkward and unexpected places when I put them on the floor again, and sometimes turned sideways and wrenched my ankles out of joint. However, it was all oriental luxury, and I did what I could to enjoy it. They put me in another part of the barn, and laid me on a stuffy sort of pallet, which was not made of cloth of gold or Persian shawls, but was merely the unpretending sort of thing I have seen in the negro quarters of Arkansas. There was nothing whatever in this dim marble prison but five more of these beers. It was a very solemn place. I expected that the spiced odors of Araby were going to steal over my senses now, but they did not. A copper-colored skeleton, with a rag around him, brought me a glass decanter of water, with a lighted tobacco-pipe in the top of it, and a pliant stem a yard long, with a brass mouthpiece to it. It was the famous Nargali of the East, the thing the Grand Turk smokes in the pictures. This began to look like luxury. I took one blast at it, and it was sufficient. The smoke went in a great volume down into my stomach, my lungs even into the uttermost parts of my frame. I exploded one mighty cough, 
and it was as if Vesuvius had let go. For the next five minutes I smoked at every pore, like a frame-house that is on fire on the inside. Not any more nargily for me. The smoke had a vile taste, and the taste of a thousand infidel tongues that remained on that brass mouthpiece was viler still. I was getting discouraged. Whenever hereafter I see the cross-legged Grand Turk smoking his nargali, in pretending bliss, on the outside of a paper of Connecticut tobacco, I shall know him for the shameless humbug he is. This prison was filled with hot air. When I had got warmed up sufficiently to prepare me for a still warmer temperature, they took me where it was, into a marble room, wet, slippery, and steamy, and laid me out on a raised platform in the center. It was very warm. Presently my man sat me down by a tank of hot water, drenched me well, gloved his hand with a coarse mitten, and began to polish me all over with it. I began to smell disagreeably. The more he polished, the worse I smelt. It was alarming. I said to him, I perceive that I am pretty far gone. It is plain that I ought to be buried without any unnecessary delay. Perhaps you had better go after my friends at once, because the weather is warm, and I cannot keep long." He went on scrubbing and paid no attention. I soon saw that he was reducing my size. He bore hard on his mitten, and from under it rolled little cylinders like macaroni. It could not be dirt, for it was too white. He pared me down in this way for a long time. Finally I said, "'It is a tedious process. It will take hours to trim me to the size you want me. I will wait. Go and borrow a jack-plane.' He paid no attention at all. After a while he brought a basin, some soap, and something that seemed to be the tail of a horse. He made up a prodigious quantity of soap-suds, deluged me with them from head to foot, without warning me to shut my eyes, and then swabbed me viciously with a horse-tail. Then he left me there, a snowy statue of lather, and went away. When I got tired of waiting I went and hunted him up. He was propped against the wall in another room, asleep. I woke him. He was not disconcerted. He took me back and flooded me with hot water, then turbaned my head, swathed me with dry tablecloths, and conducted me to a latticed chicken-coop in one of the galleries, and pointed to one of those Arkansas beds. I mounted it, and vaguely expected the odors of Araby again. They did not come. The blank, unornamented coop had nothing about it of that oriental voluptuousness one reads of so much. It was more suggestive of the county hospital than anything else. The skinny servitor brought a nargali, and I got him to take it out again without wasting any time about it. Then he brought the world-renowned Turkish coffee that poets have sung so rapturously for many generations, and I seized upon it as the last hope that was left of my old dreams of Eastern luxury. It was another fraud. Of all the unchristian beverages that ever passed my lips, Turkish coffee is the worst. The cup is small. It is smeared with grounds. The coffee is black, thick, unsavory of smell, and execrable in taste. The bottom of the cup has a muddy sediment in it half an inch deep. This goes down your throat, and portions of it lodge by the way, and produce a tickling aggravation that keeps you barking and coughing for an hour. Here endeth my experience of the celebrated Turkish bath, and here also endeth my dream of the bliss the mortal revels in who passes through it. It is a malignant swindle. 
The man who enjoys it is qualified to enjoy anything that is repulsive to sight or sense, and he that can invest it with a charm of poetry is able to do the same with anything else in the world that is tedious and wretched and dismal and nasty. End of chapter 34 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 35 Sailing Through the Bosporus and the Black Sea Far Away Moses Melancholy Sebastopol Hospitality Received in Russia Pleasant English People Desperate Fighting Relic Hunting How Travelers Form Cabinets we left a dozen passengers in constantinople and sailed through the beautiful bosporus and far up into the black sea we left them in the clutches of the celebrated turkish guide faraway moses who will seduce them into buying a shipload of otter of roses splendid turkish vestments and all manner of curious things they can never have any use for murray's invaluable guide-books have mentioned faraway moses name and he is a made man he rejoices daily in the fact that he is a recognized celebrity. However, we cannot alter our established customs to please the whims of guides. We cannot show partialities this late in the day. Therefore, ignoring this fellow's brilliant fame, and ignoring the fanciful name he takes such pride in, we called him Ferguson, just as we had done with all other guides. It has kept him in a state of smothered exasperation all the time, yet we meant him no harm after he has gotten himself up regardless of expense in showy baggy trousers yellow pointed slippers fiery fez silken jacket of blue voluminous waist sash of fancy persian stuff filled with a battery of silver-mounted horse pistols and has strapped on his terrible scimitar he considers it an unspeakable humiliation to be called ferguson it cannot be helped all guides are fergusons to us we cannot master their dreadful foreign names. Sebastopol is probably the worst battered town in Russia, or anywhere else, but we ought to be pleased with it, nevertheless, for we have been in no country yet where we have been so kindly received, and where we felt that to be Americans was a sufficient visa for our passports. The moment the anchor was down, the governor of the town immediately dispatched an officer on board to inquire if he could be of any assistance to us, and to invite us to make ourselves at home in Sebastopol. If you know Russia, you know that this was a wild stretch of hospitality. They are usually so suspicious of strangers that they worry them excessively with the delays and aggravations incident to a complicated passport system. Had we come from any other country, we could not have had permission to enter Sebastopol and leave again under three days. But as it was, we were at liberty to go and come when and where we pleased. Everybody in Constantinople warned us to be very careful about our passports, see that they were strictly en règle, and never to mislay them for a moment. And they told us of numerous instances of Englishmen and others who were delayed days, weeks, and even months in Sebastopol, on account of trifling informalities in their passports, and for which they were not to blame. I had lost my passport, and was travelling under my roommates, who stayed behind in Constantinople to await our return. 
To read the description of him in that passport and then look at me, any man could see that I was no more like him than I am like Hercules. So I went into the harbor of Sebastopol with fear and trembling, full of a vague, horrible apprehension that I was going to be found out and hanged. But all that time my true passport had been floating gallantly overhead, and behold it was only our flag. They never asked us for any other. We have had a great many Russian and English gentlemen and ladies on board to-day, and the time has passed cheerfully away. They were all happy-spirited people, and I never heard our mother-tongue sound so pleasantly as it did when it fell from those English lips in this far-off land. I talked to the Russians a good deal, just to be friendly, and they talked to me from the same motive. I am sure that both enjoyed the conversation, but never a word of it either of us understood. I did most of my talking to those English people, though, and I am sorry we cannot carry some of them along with us. We have gone whithersoever we chose to-day, and have met with nothing but the kindest attentions. Nobody inquired whether we had any passports or not. Several of the officers of the government have suggested that we take the ship to a little watering-place thirty miles from here, and pay the Emperor of Russia a visit. He is rusticating there. These officers said they would take it upon themselves to ensure us a cordial reception. They said if we would go, they would not only telegraph the Emperor, but send a special courier overland to announce our coming. Our time is so short, though, and more especially our coal is so nearly out, that we judged it best to forego the rare pleasure of holding social intercourse with an emperor. Ruined Pompeii is in good condition compared to Sebastopol. Here you may look in whatsoever direction you please, and your eye encounters scarcely anything but ruin, ruin, ruin. Fragments of houses, crumbled walls, torn and ragged hills, devastation everywhere. It is as if a mighty earthquake had spent all its terrible forces upon this one little spot. For eighteen long months the storms of war beat upon the helpless town, and left it at last the saddest wreck that ever the sun has looked upon. Not one solitary house escaped unscathed, not one remained habitable even. Such utter and complete ruin one could hardly conceive of. The houses had all been solid, dressed stone structures. Most of them were ploughed through and through by cannon-balls, unroofed and sliced down from eaves to foundation, and now a row of them, half a mile long, looks merely like an endless procession of battered chimneys. No semblance of a house remains in such as these. Some of the larger buildings had corners knocked off, pillars cut in two, cornices smashed, holes driven straight through the walls. Many of these holes are as round and as cleanly cut as if they had been made with an auger. Others are half pierced through, and the clean impression is there in the rock, as smooth and as shapely as if it were done in putty. Here and there a ball still sticks in a wall, and from it iron tears trickle down and discolor the stone. The battlefields were pretty close together. The Malakoff Tower is on a hill which is right in the edge of the town. The Redan was within rifle-shot of the Malakoff. Inkerman was a mile away, and Balaklava removed but an hour's ride. The French trenches, by which they approached and invested the Malakoff, were carried so close under its sloping sides that one might have stood by the Russian guns and tossed a stone into them. Repeatedly, during three terrible days, they swarmed up the little Malakoff hill, 
and were beaten back with terrible slaughter. Finally they captured the place, and drove the Russians out, who then tried to retreat into the town, but the English had taken the Redan, and shut them off with a wall of flame. There was nothing for them to do but go back and retake the Malakoff, or die under its guns. They did go back. They took the Malakoff, and retook it two or three times. But their desperate valor could not avail, and they had to give up at last. These fearful fields, where such tempests of death used to rage, are peaceful enough now. No sound is heard, hardly a living thing moves about them. They are lonely and silent. Their desolation is complete. There was nothing else to do, and so everybody went to hunting relics. They have stocked the ship with them. They brought them from the Malakoff, from the Redan, Inkerman, Balaklava, everywhere. They have brought cannon-balls, broken ramrods, fragments of shell, iron enough to freight a sloop. Some have even brought bones, brought them laboriously from great distances, and were grieved to hear the surgeon pronounce them only bones of mules and oxen. I knew Blucher would not lose an opportunity like this. He brought a sackful on board, and was going for another. I prevailed upon him not to go. He has already turned his stateroom into a museum of worthless trumpery, which he has gathered up in his travels. He is labeling his trophies now. I picked up one a while ago, and found it marked Fragment of a Russian General. I carried it out to get a better light upon it. It was nothing but a couple of teeth, and part of the jawbone of a horse. I said with some asperity, Fragment of a Russian General. This is absurd. Are you never going to learn any sense?" He only said, "'Go slow. The old woman won't know any different.' His aunt. This person gathers mementos with a perfect recklessness nowadays, mixes them all up together, and then serenely labels them without any regard to truth, propriety, or even plausibility. I have found him breaking a stone in two, and labeling half of it chunk busted from the pulpit of Demosthenes, and the other half Darnick from the tomb of Abelard and Heloise. I have known him to gather up a handful of pebbles by the roadside, and bring them on board ship, and label them as coming from twenty celebrated localities five hundred miles apart. I remonstrate against these outrages upon reason and truth, of course, but it does no good. I get the same tranquil, unanswerable reply every time. It don't signify. The old woman won't know any different. Ever since we three or four fortunate ones made the midnight trip to Athens, it has afforded him genuine satisfaction to give everybody in the ship a pebble from the Mars Hill where St. Paul preached. He got all those pebbles on the seashore, abreast the ship, but professes to have gathered them from one of our party. However, it is not of any use for me to expose the deception. It affords him pleasure, and does no harm to anybody. He says he never expects to run out of mementos of St. Paul as long as he is in the reach of a sandbank. Well, he is no worse than others. I notice that all travellers supply deficiencies in their collections in the same way. I shall never have any confidence in such things again while I live. End of chapter 35 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Thirty Six, Nine Thousand Miles East, 
imitation American town in Russia. Gratitude that came too late. To visit the autocrat of all the Russias. We have got so far east now, a hundred and fifty-five degrees of longitude from San Francisco, that my watch cannot keep the hang of the time any more. It has grown discouraged, and stopped. I think it did a wise thing. The difference in time between Sebastopol and the Pacific coast is enormous. When it is six o'clock in the morning here, it is somewhere about week before last in California. We are excusable for getting a little tangled as to time. These distractions and distresses about the time have worried me so much that I was afraid my mind was so much affected that I never would have any appreciation of time again. But when I noticed how handy I was yet about comprehending when it was dinner-time, a blessed tranquillity settled down upon me, and I am tortured with doubts and fears no more. Odessa is about twenty hours' run from Sebastopol, and is the most northerly port in the Black Sea. We came here to get coal, principally. The city has a population of one hundred and thirty-three thousand, and is growing faster than any other small city out of America. It is a free port, and is the great grain mart of this particular part of the world. Its roadstead is full of ships. Engineers are at work now, turning the open roadstead into a spacious artificial harbor. It is to be almost enclosed by massive stone piers, one of which will extend into the sea over three thousand feet in a straight line. I have not felt so much at home for a long time as I did when I raised the hill and stood in Odessa for the first time. It looked just like an American city. Fine, broad streets, and straight as well. Low houses, two or three stories, wide, neat, and free from any quaintness of architectural ornamentation. Locust trees bordering the sidewalks, they call them acacias. A stirring business look about the streets and the stores fast walkers, a familiar new look about the houses and everything. Yea, and a driving and smothering cloud of dust that was so like a message from our own dear native land that we could hardly refrain from shedding a few grateful tears and execrations in the old-time honored American way. Look up the street or down the street, this way or that way, we saw only America. There was not one thing to remind us that we were in Russia. We walked for some little distance, reveling in this home vision, and then we came upon a church and a hack-driver, and presto, the illusion vanished. The church had a splendor-spired dome that rounded inward at its base, and looked like a turnip turned upside down, and the hackman seemed to be dressed in a long petticoat without any hoops. These things were essentially foreign, and so were the carriages, but everybody knows about these things and there is no occasion for my describing them. We were only to stay here a day and a night, and take in coal. We consulted the guide-books, and were rejoiced to know that there were no sights in Odessa to see, and so we had one good, untrammeled holiday on our hands, with nothing to do but idle about the city and enjoy ourselves. We sauntered through the markets, and criticized the fearful and wonderful costumes from the back country, examined the populace as far as eyes could do it, and closed the entertainment with an ice-cream debauch. We do not get ice-cream everywhere, and so, when we do, we are apt to dissipate to excess. We never cared anything about ice-cream at home. 
but we look upon it with a sort of idolatry now, that it is so scarce in these red-hot climates of the East. We only found two pieces of statuary, and this was another blessing. One was a bronze image of the Duc de Richelieu, grand-nephew of the splendid cardinal. It stood in a spacious handsome promenade overlooking the sea, and from its base a vast flight of stone steps led down to the harbor, two hundred of them, fifty feet long, and a wide landing at the bottom of every twenty. It is a noble staircase, and from a distance the people toiling up it looked like insects. I mention this statue and this stairway because they have their story. Richelieu founded Odessa, watched over it with paternal care, labored with a fertile brain and wise understanding for its best interests, spent his fortune freely to the same end, endowed it with a sound prosperity, and one which will yet make it one of the great cities of the old world, built this noble stairway with money from his own private purse, and, well, the people for whom he had done so much let him walk down these same steps one day, unattended, old, poor, without a second coat to his back, and when, years afterwards, he died in Sebastopol, in poverty and neglect, they called a meeting, subscribed liberally, and immediately erected this tasteful monument to his memory, and named a great street after him. It reminds me of what Robert Burns' mother said when they erected a stately monument to his memory. Ah, Robbie, you asked them for bread, and they again you a stone. The people of Odessa have warmly recommended us to go and call on the Emperor, as did the Sebastopolians. They have telegraphed His Majesty, and he has signified his willingness to grant us an audience. So we are getting up the anchors and preparing to sail to his watering-place. What a scratching around there will be now! What a holding of important meetings and appointing of solemn committees! And what a furbishing up of claw-hammer coats and white silk neckties! As this fearful ordeal we are about to pass through pictures itself to my fancy in all its dread sublimity, I begin to feel my fierce desire to converse with the genuine emperor cooling down and passing away. What am I to do with my hands? What am I to do with my feet? What in the world am I to do with myself? End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 Summer Home of Royalty Practicing for the Dread Ordeal Committee on Imperial Address Reception by the Emperor and Family Dresses of the Imperial Party Concentrated Power Counting the Spoons At the Grand Dukes A Charming Villa A Knightly Figure The Grand Duchess A Grand Ducal Breakfast Baker's Boy, the Famine Breeder Theatrical Monarchs a Fraud Saved as by Fire The Governor General's Visit to the Ship Official Style aristocratic visitors, Munchausenizing with them, closing ceremonies. We anchored here at Yalta, Russia, two or three days ago. To me the place was a vision of the Sierras, the tall gray mountains that back it, their sides bristling with pines, cloven with ravines, here and there a hoary rock towering into view, long straight streaks sweeping down from the summit to the sea, marking the passage of some avalanche of former times. All these were as like what one sees in the Sierras, as if the one were a portrait of the other. 
The little village of Yalta nestles at the foot of an amphitheatre, which slopes backward and upward to the wall of hills, and looks as if it might have sunk quietly down to its present position from a higher elevation. This depression is covered with the great parks and gardens of noblemen, and through the mass of green foliage the bright colors of their palaces bud out here and there like flowers. It is a beautiful spot. We had the United States Consul on board, the Odessa Consul. We assembled in the cabin, and commanded him to tell us what we must do to be saved, and tell us quickly. He made a speech. The first thing he said fell like a blight on every hopeful spirit. He had never seen a court reception. Three groans for the consul. But he said he had seen receptions at the Governor-General's in Odessa, and had often listened to people's experience of receptions at the Russian and other courts, and believed he knew very well what sort of ordeal we were about to essay. Hope budded again. He said we were many. The summer palace was small, a mere mansion. Doubtless we should be received in summer fashion, in the garden. We would stand in a row, all the gentlemen in swallow-tail coats, white kids, white neckties, and the ladies in light-colored silks, or something of that kind. At the proper moment, twelve meridian, the emperor, attended by his suite, arrayed in splendid uniforms, would appear and walk slowly along the line, bowing to some, and saying two or three words to others. At the moment His Majesty appeared, a universal, delighted, enthusiastic smile ought to break out like a rash among the passengers, a smile of love, of gratification, of admiration. And with one accord the party must begin to bow, not obsequiously, but respectfully and with dignity. At the end of fifteen minutes the Emperor would go in the house, and we could run along home again. We felt immensely relieved. It seemed, in a manner, easy. There was not a man in the party but believed that, with a little practice, he could stand in a row, especially if there were others along. There was not a man but believed he could bow, without tripping on his coat-tail and breaking his neck. In a word, we came to believe we were equal to any item in the performance except that complicated smile. The consul also said we ought to draft a little address to the Emperor, and present it to one of his aide-de-camp, who would forward it to him at the proper time. Therefore, five gentlemen were appointed to prepare the document, and the fifty others went sadly smiling about the ship, practicing. During the next twelve hours we had the general appearance, somehow, of being at a funeral, where everybody was sorry the death had occurred, but glad it was over, where everybody was smiling, and yet broken-hearted. A committee went ashore to wait on His Excellency the Governor-General, and learn our fate. At the end of three hours of boding suspense, they came back and said the Emperor would receive us at noon the next day, would send carriages for us, would hear the address in person. The Grand Duke Michael had sent to invite us to his palace also. Any man could see that there was an intention here to show that Russia's friendship for America was so genuine as to render even her private citizens' objects worthy of kindly attentions. At the appointed hour we drove out three miles, and assembled in the handsome garden in front of the Emperor's palace. We formed a circle under the trees before the door, for there was no one room in the house able to accommodate our three-score persons comfortably, and in a few minutes the Imperial family came out bowing and smiling, and stood in our midst. A number of great dignitaries of the Empire, in undress unit forms, came with them. With every bow His Majesty said a word of welcome. I copy these speeches. There is character in them. 
Russian character, which is politeness itself, and the genuine article. The French are polite, but it is often mere ceremonious politeness. A Russian imbues his polite things with a heartiness, both of phrase and expression, that compels belief in their sincerity. As I was saying, the Tsar punctuated his speeches with bows. "'Good morning! I am glad to see you. I am gratified. I am delighted. I am happy to receive you.' All took off their hats, and the consul inflicted the address on him. He bore it with unflinching fortitude, then took the rusty-looking document, and handed it to some great officer or other, to be filed away among the archives of Russia, in the stove. He thanked us for the address, and said he was very much pleased to see us, especially as such friendly relations existed between Russia and the United States. The Empress said the Americans were favorites in Russia, and she hoped the Russians were similarly regarded in America. These were all the speeches that were made and I recommend them to parties who present policemen with gold watches, as models of brevity and point. After this the Empress went and talked sociably, for an Empress, with various ladies around the circle. Several gentlemen entered into a disjointed general conversation with the Emperor. The dukes and princes, admirals and maids of honor dropped into free and easy chat with first one and then another of our party, and whoever chose stepped forward and spoke with the modest little Grand Duchess Marie, the Tsar's daughter. She is fourteen years old, light-haired, blue-eyed, unassuming, and pretty. Everybody talks English. The Emperor wore a cap, frock-coat, and pantaloons, all of some kind of plain white drilling, cotton or linen, and sported no jewelry or any insignia whatever of rank. No costume could be less ostentatious. He is very tall and spare, and a determined-looking man, though very pleasant-looking one nevertheless. It is easy to see that he is kind and affectionate. There is something very noble in his expression when his cap is off. There is none of that cunning in his eye that all of us noticed in Louis Napoleon's. The Empress and the little Grand Duchess wore simple suits of foulard, or foulard silk, I don't know which is proper, with a small blue spot in it. The dresses were trimmed with blue. Both ladies wore broad blue sashes about their waists, linen collars and clerical ties of muslin, low-crowned straw hats trimmed with blue velvet, parasols, and flesh-colored gloves. The Grand Duchess had no heels on her shoes. I do not know this of my own knowledge, but one of our ladies told me so. I was not looking at her shoes. I was glad to observe that she wore her own hair, plaited in thick braids against the back of her head, instead of the uncomely thing they call a waterfall, which is about as much like a waterfall as a canvas-covered ham is like a cataract. Taking the kind expression that is in the Emperor's face, and the gentleness that is in his young daughter's into consideration, I wondered if it would not tax the Tsar's firmness to the utmost to condemn a supplicating wretch to misery in the wastes of Siberia if she pleaded for him. Every time their eyes met I saw more and more what a tremendous power that weak, diffident schoolgirl could wield if she chose to do it. Many and many a time she might rule the autocrat of Russia, whose lightest word is law to seventy millions of human beings. She was only a girl, and she looked like a thousand others I have seen, but never a girl provoked such a novel and peculiar interest in me before. A strange new sensation is a rare thing in this humdrum life, and I had it here. 
there was nothing stale or worn out about the thoughts and feelings the situation and the circumstances created. It seemed strange, stranger than I can tell, to think that the central figure in the cluster of men and women, chatting here under the trees like the most ordinary individual in the land, was a man who could open his lips and ships would fly through the waves, locomotives would speed over the plains, couriers would hurry from village to village, a hundred telegraphs would flash the word to the four corners of an empire that stretches its vast proportions over a seventh part of the habitable globe, and a countless multitude of men would spring to do his bidding. I had a sort of vague desire to examine his hands and see if they were of flesh and blood like other men's. Here was a man who could do this wonderful thing, and yet, if I chose, I could knock him down. The case was plain, but it seemed preposterous, nevertheless, as preposterous as trying to knock down a mountain, or wipe out a continent. If this man sprained his ankle, a million miles of telegraph would carry the news over mountains, valleys, uninhabited deserts, under the trackless sea, and ten thousand newspapers would prate of it. If he were grievously ill, all the nations would know it before the sun rose again. If he dropped lifeless where he stood, his fall might shake the thrones of half a world. If I could have stolen his coat, I would have done it. When I meet a man like that, I want something to remember him by. As a general thing, we have been shown through palaces by some plush-legged filigreed flunky or other, who charged a franc for it. But after talking with the company half an hour, the Emperor of Russia and his family conducted us all through their mansion themselves. They made no charge. They seemed to take a real pleasure of it. We spent half an hour idling through the palace, admiring the cosy apartments and the rich but eminently homelike appointments of the place, and then the imperial family bade our party a kind good-bye, and proceeded to count the spoons. An invitation was extended to us to visit the palace of the eldest son, the Crown Prince of Russia, which was near at hand. The young man was absent, but the dukes and countesses and princes went over the premises with us as leisurely as was the case at the Emperor's and conversations continued as lively as ever. It was a little after one o'clock now. We drove to the Grand Duke Michael's, a mile away, in response to his invitation previously given. We arrived in twenty minutes from the Emperor's. It is a lovely place. The beautiful palace nestles among the grand old groves of the park. The park sits in the lap of the picturesque crags and hills, and both look out upon the breezy ocean. In the park are rustic seats, here and there, in secluded nooks that are dark with shade. There are rivulets of crystal water, there are lakelets with inviting grassy banks, there are glimpses of sparkling cascades through openings in the wilderness of foliage, there are streams of clear water gushing from mimic knots on the trunks of forest trees, there are miniature marble temples perched upon grey old crags. There are airy lookouts whence one can gaze upon a broad expanse of landscape and ocean. The palace is modeled after the choicest forms of Grecian architecture, and its wide colonnades surround a central court that is banked with rare flowers that fill the place with their fragrance, and in their midst springs a fountain that cools the summer air, and may possibly breed mosquitoes, but I do not think it does. The Grand Duke and his Duchess came out and the presentation ceremonies were as simple as they had been at the Emperor's. In a few minutes conversation was under way as before. The Empress appeared in the veranda, and the little Grand Duchess came out into the crowd. They had beaten us there. In a few minutes the Emperor came himself on horseback. It was very pleasant. 
You can appreciate it if you ever visited royalty and felt occasionally that possibly you might be wearing out your welcome, though, as a general thing, I believe royalty is not scrupulous about discharging you when it is done with you. The Grand Duke is the third brother of the Emperor, is about thirty-seven years old, perhaps, and is the princeliest figure in Russia. He is even taller than the Tsar, as straight as an Indian, and bears himself like one of those gorgeous knights we read about in romances of the Crusades. He looks like a great-hearted fellow who would pitch an enemy into the river in a moment, and then jump in and risk his life fishing him out again. The stories they tell of him show him to be of a brave and generous nature. He must have been desirous of proving that Americans were welcome guests in the imperial palaces of Russia, because he rode all the way to Yalta, and escorted our procession to the Emperor's himself, and kept his aides scurrying about, clearing the road, and offering assistance wherever it could be needed. We were rather familiar with him then, because we did not know who he was. We recognized him now, and appreciated the friendly spirit that prompted him to do us a favor that any other Grand Duke in the world would have doubtless declined to do. He had plenty of servitors whom he could have sent, but he chose to attend to the matter himself. The Grand Duke was dressed in the handsome and showy uniform of a Cossack officer. The Grand Duchess had on a white alpaca robe, with the seams and gores trimmed with black barb lace, and a little gray hat with a feather of the same color. She is young, rather pretty, modest and unpretending, and full of winning politeness. Our party walked all through the house, and then the nobility escorted them all over the grounds, and finally brought them back to the palace about half-past two o'clock to breakfast. They called it breakfast, but we would have called it luncheon. It consisted of two kinds of wine—tea, bread, cheese, and cold meats and was served on the centre-tables, in the reception-room and the verandas, anywhere that was convenient. There was no ceremony. It was a sort of picnic. I had heard before that we were to breakfast there, but Blucher said he believed Baker's boy had suggested it to His Imperial Highness. I think not, though it would be like him. Baker's boy is the famine-breeder of the ship. He is always hungry. They say he goes about the state-rooms when the passengers are out, and eats up all the soap and they say he eats oakum. They say he will eat anything he can get between meals, but he prefers oakum. He does not like oakum for dinner, but he likes it for a lunch, at odd hours, or anything that way. It makes him very disagreeable, because it makes his breath bad, and keeps his teeth all stuck up with tar. Baker's boy may have suggested the breakfast, but I hope he did not. It went off well, anyhow. The illustrious host moved about from place to place, and helped to destroy the provisions and keep the conversation lively, and the Grand Duchess talked with the veranda parties, and such as had satisfied their appetites, and straggled out from the reception-room. The Grand Duke's tea was delicious. They give one a lemon to squeeze into, or iced milk if he prefers it. The former is best. This tea is brought overland from China. It injures the article to transport it by sea. When it was time to go, we bade our distinguished hosts good-bye, and they retired happy and contented to their apartments to count their spoons. We had spent the best part of half a day in the home of royalty, and had been as cheerful and comfortable all the time as we could have been in the ship. I would as soon have thought of being cheerful in Abraham's bosom as in the palace of an emperor. I supposed that emperors were terrible people. 
I thought they never did anything but wear magnificent crowns and red velvet dressing-gowns with dabs of wool sewed on them in spots, and sit on thrones and scowl at the flunkies and the people in the parquet, and order dukes and duchesses off to execution. I find, however, that when one is so fortunate as to get behind the scenes and see them at home and in the privacy of their firesides, they are strangely like common mortals. They are pleasanter to look upon than they are in their theatrical aspect. It seems to come as natural to them to dress and act like other people as it is to put a friend's cedar pencil in your pocket when you are done using it. But I can never have any confidence in the tinsel kings of the theatre after this. It will be a great loss. I used to take such a thrilling pleasure in them. But hereafter I will turn me sadly away and say, This does not answer. This isn't the style of king that I am acquainted with. When they swagger around the stage in jeweled crowns and splendid robes, I shall feel bound to observe that all the emperors that ever I was personally acquainted with wore the commonest sort of clothes, and did not swagger. And when they come on the stage attended by a vast bodyguard of soups in helmets and tin breastplates, it will be my duty as well as my pleasure to inform the ignorant that no crowned head of my acquaintance has a soldier anywhere about his house or his person. Possibly it may be thought that our party tarried too long, or did other improper things, but such was not the case. The company felt that they were occupying an unusually responsible position. They were representing the people of America, not the government, and therefore they were careful to do their best to perform their high mission with credit. On the other hand, the imperial families, no doubt, considered that in entertaining us they were more especially entertaining the people of America than they could by showering attentions on a whole platoon of ministers plenipotentiary, and therefore they gave to the event its fullest significance, as an expression of goodwill and friendly feeling toward the entire country. We took the kindnesses we received as attentions thus directed, of course, and not to ourselves as a party that we felt a personal pride in being received as the representatives of a nation, we do not deny. That we felt a national pride in the warm cordiality of that reception cannot be doubted. Our poet has been rigidly suppressed, from the time we let go the anchor. When it was announced that we were going to visit the Emperor of Russia, the fountains of his great deep were broken up, and he reigned ineffable bosh for four-and-twenty hours. Our original anxiety as to what we were going to do with ourselves was suddenly transformed into anxiety about what we were going to do with our poet. The problem was solved at last. Two alternatives were offered him. He must either swear a dreadful oath that he would not issue a line of his poetry while he was in the Tsar's dominions, or else remain under guard on board the ship until we were safe at Constantinople again. He fought the dilemma long, but yielded at last. It was a great deliverance. Perhaps the savage reader would like a specimen of his style. I do not mean this term to be offensive. I only use it because the gentle reader has been used so often that any change from it cannot but be refreshing. Save us and sanctify us, and finally, then, see good provisions we enjoy while we journey to Jerusalem. For so man proposes, which it is most true, and time will wait for none nor for us, too. The sea has been unusually rough all day. However, we have had a lively time of it, anyhow. We have had quite a run of visitors. The Governor-General came, and we received him with a salute of nine guns. He brought his family with him. 
I observed that carpets were spread from the pier-head to his carriage for him to walk on, though I have seen him walk there without any carpet when he was not on business. I thought maybe he had what the accidental insurance people might call an extra-hazardous polish—policy joke, but not above mediocrity—on his boots, and wished to protect them, but I examined and could not see that they were blacked any better than usual. It may have been that he had forgotten his carpet before, but he did not have it with him anyhow. He was an exceedingly pleasant old gentleman. We all liked him, especially Blucher. When he went away, Blucher invited him to come again and fetch his carpet along. Prince Dolgoruki and a grand marshal or two, whom we had seen yesterday at the reception, came on board also. I was a little distant with these parties at first, because when I have been visiting emperors I do not like to be too familiar with people I only know by reputation, and whose moral characters and standing in society I cannot be thoroughly acquainted with. I judged it best to be a little offish at first. I said to myself, princes and counts and grand admirals are all very well, but they are not emperors, and one cannot be too particular about who he associates with. Baron Wrangel came, also. He used to be Russian ambassador at Washington. I told him I had an uncle who fell down a shaft and broke himself in two as much as a year before that. That was a falsehood. But then I was not going to let any man eclipse me on surprising adventures, merely for the want of a little invention. The Baron is a fine man, and is said to stand high in the Emperor's confidence and esteem. Baron Unger Sternberg a boisterous, whole-souled old nobleman, came with the rest. He is a man of progress and enterprise, a representative man of the age. He is the chief director of the railway system of Russia, a sort of railroad king. In his line he is making things move along in this country. He has travelled extensively in America. He says he has tried convict labor on his railroads, and with perfect success. He says the convicts work well, and are quiet and peaceable. He observed that he employs nearly ten thousand of them now. This appeared to be another call on my resources. I was equal to the emergency. I said we had eighty thousand convicts employed on the railways in America, all of them under sentence of death for murder in the first degree. That closed him out. We had General Totleben, the famous defender of Sebastopol during the siege, and many inferior army and also navy officers, and a number of unofficial Russian ladies and gentlemen. Naturally a champagne luncheon was in order, and was accomplished without loss of life. Toasts and jokes were discharged freely, but no speeches were made save one thanking the Emperor and the Grand Duke, through the Governor-General, for our hospitable reception, and one by the Governor-General in reply, in which he returned the Emperor's thanks for the speech, etc., etc. End of chapter 37 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 38. Return to Constantinople. We sail for Asia. The sailors burlesque the imperial visitors. Ancient Smyrna. The Oriental Splendor. Fraud. The Biblical Crown of Life. Pilgrim Prophecy Savants. Sociable Armenian Girls, A Sweet Reminiscence, The Camels Are Coming, Ha-Ha!
We returned to Constantinople, and after a day or two spent in exhausting marches about the city, and voyages up the Golden Horn in Caiques, we steamed away again. We passed through the Sea of Marmora and the Dardanelles, and steered for a new land—a new one to us, at least—Asia. We had as yet only acquired a bowing acquaintance with it, through pleasure excursions to Scutari and the regions round about. We passed between Lemnos and Mytilene, and saw them as we had seen Elba and the Balearic Isles, mere bulky shapes, with the softening mists of distance upon them, whales in a fog, as it were. Then we held our course southward, and began to read up celebrated Smyrna. At all hours of the day and night the sailors in the forecastle amused themselves and aggravated us by burlesquing our visit to royalty. The opening paragraph of our address to the Emperor was framed as follows. We are a handful of private citizens of America, travelling simply for recreation, and unostentatiously, as becomes our unofficial state, and therefore we have no excuse to tender for presenting ourselves before your Majesty, save the desire of offering our grateful acknowledgments to the Lord of a realm which, through good and through evil report, has been the steadfast friend of the land we love so well. The third cook, crowned with a resplendent tin basin and wrapped royally in a tablecloth mottled with grease-spots and coffee-stains, and bearing a sceptre that looked strangely like a belaying-pin, walked upon a dilapidated carpet and perched himself on the capstan, careless of the flying spray. His tarred and weather-beaten chamberlains, dukes and lord high admirals, surrounded him, arrayed in all the pomp that spare tarpaulins and remnants of old sails could furnish. Then the visiting watch below, transformed into graceless ladies and uncouth pilgrims, by rude travesties upon waterfalls, hoop-skirts, white kid gloves, and swallow-tail coats, moved solemnly up the companionway, and, bowing low, began a system of complicated and extraordinary smiling, which few monarchs could look upon and live. Then the mock consul, a slush-plastered deck-sweep, drew out a soiled fragment of paper, and proceeded to read, laboriously, to his imperial majesty alexander the second emperor of russia we are a handful of private citizens of america travelling simply for recreation and unostentatiously as becomes our unofficial state and therefore we have no excuse to tender for presenting ourselves before your majesty the emperor then what the devil did you come for save the desire of offering our grateful acknowledgments to the lord of a realm which the emperor oh damn the address read it to the police chamberlain take these people over to my brother the grand dukes and give them a square meal adieu i am happy i am gratified i am delighted i am bored adieu adieu vamos the ranch the first groom of the palace will proceed to count the portable articles of value belonging to the premises. The farce then closed, to be repeated again with every change of the watches, and embellished with new and still more extravagant inventions of pomp and conversation. At all times of the day and night the phraseology of that tiresome address fell upon our ears. Grimy sailors came down out of the forestep, placidly announcing themselves as a handful of private citizens of America, travelling simply for recreation and unostentatiously, etc. 
the coal-passers moved to their duties in the profound depths of the ship, explaining the blackness of their faces and their uncouthness of dress, with the reminder that they were a handful of private citizens travelling simply for recreation, etc., and when the cry rang through the vessel at midnight, Eight bells! Larboard watch! Turn out! The larboard watch came gaping and stretching out of their den, with the everlasting formula, Aye, aye, sir! We are a handful of private citizens of America, travelling simply for recreation and unostentatiously, as becomes our unofficial state." As I was a member of the committee, and helped to frame the address, these sarcasms came home to me. I never heard a sailor proclaiming himself as a handful of American citizens travelling for recreation, but I wished he might trip and fall overboard, and so reduce his handful by one individual at least. I never was so tired of any one phrase as the sailors made me of the opening sentence of the address to the Emperor of Russia. This seaport of Smyrna, our first notable acquaintance in Asia, is a closely packed city of one hundred and thirty thousand inhabitants, and, like Constantinople, it has no outskirts. It is as closely packed at its outer edges as it is in the centre, and then the habitations leave suddenly off and the plain beyond seems houseless. It is just like any other oriental city. That is to say, its Moslem houses are heavy and dark, and as comfortless as so many tombs. Its streets are crooked, rudely and roughly paved, and as narrow as an ordinary staircase. The streets uniformly carry a man to any other place than the one he wants to go to, and surprise him by landing him in the most unexpected localities. Business is chiefly carried on in great covered bazaars, celled like a honeycomb with innumerable shops no larger than a common closet, and the whole hive cut up into a maze of alleys about wide enough to accommodate a laden camel, and well calculated to confuse a stranger and eventually lose him. Everywhere there is dirt, everywhere there are fleas, everywhere there are lean, broken-hearted dogs. Every alley is thronged with people. Wherever you look, your eyes rests upon a wild masquerade of extravagant costumes. The workshops are all open to the streets, and the workmen visible. All manner of sounds assail the ear, and over them all rings out the muezzin's cry from some tall minaret, calling the faithful vagabonds to prayer. And superior to the call to prayer, the noises in the streets, the interest of the costumes, superior to everything, and claiming the bulk of attention first, last, and all the time, is a combination of Mohammedan stenches, to which the smell of even a Chinese quarter would be as pleasant as the roasting odours of the fatted calf to the nostrils of the returning prodigal. Such is Oriental luxury, such is Oriental splendour. We read about it all our days, but we comprehend it not until we see it. Smyrna is a very old city. Its name occurs several times in the Bible. One or two of the disciples of Christ visited it, and here was located one of the original seven apocalyptic churches spoken of in Revelations. These churches were symbolized in the scriptures as candlesticks, and on certain conditions there was a sort of implied promise that Smyrna should be endowed with a crown of life. She was to be faithful unto death. Those were the terms. She has not kept up her faith straight along but the pilgrims that wander hither consider that she has come near enough to it to save her, and so they point to the fact that Smyrna, to-day, wears her crown of life, and is a great city, with a great commerce and full of energy, 
while the cities wherein were located the other six churches, and to which no crown of life was promised, have vanished from the earth. So Smyrna really still possesses her crown of life, in a business point of view. Her career for eighteen centuries has been a checkered one, and she has been under the rule of princes of many creeds, yet there has been no season during all that time, as far as we know, and during such seasons as she was inhabited at all, that she has been without her little community of Christians, faithful unto death. Hers was the only church against which no threats were implied in the revelations, and the only one which survived. With Ephesus, forty miles from here, where was located another of the seven churches, the case was different. The candlestick has been removed from Ephesus. Her light has been put out. Pilgrims, always prone to find prophecies in the Bible, and often where none exist, speak cheerfully and complacently of poor ruined Ephesus as the victim of prophecy. And yet there is no sentence that promises, without due qualification, the destruction of the city. The words are, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That is all. The other verses are singularly complementary to Ephesus. The threat is qualified. There is no history to show that she did not repent. But the cruelest habit the modern prophecy savants have is that one of coolly and arbitrarily fitting the prophetic shirt on to the wrong man. They do it without regard to rhyme or reason. Both the cases I have just mentioned are instances in point. Those prophecies are distinctly leveled at the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, etc., and yet the pilgrims invariably make them refer to the cities instead. No crown of life is promised to the town of Smyrna and its commerce, but to the handful of Christians who formed its church. If they were faithful unto death, they have their crown now. But no amount of faithfulness and legal shrewdness combined could legitimately drag the city into a participation in the promises of the prophecy. The stately language of the Bible refers to a crown of life whose luster will reflect the day-beams of the endless ages of eternity, not the butterfly existence of a city built by men's hands, which must pass to dust with the builders, and be forgotten even in the mere handful of centuries vouchsafed to the solid world itself between its cradle and its grave. The fashion of delving out fulfillments of prophecy where that prophecy consists of mere ifs trenches upon the absurd. Suppose, a thousand years from now, a malarious swamp builds itself up in the shallow harbour of Smyrna, or something else kills the town. And suppose, also, that within that time the swamp that has filled the renowned harbour of Ephesus, and rendered her ancient site deadly and uninhabitable to-day, becomes hard and healthy ground. Suppose the natural consequence ensues, to wit, that Smyrna becomes a melancholy ruin, and Ephesus is rebuilt. What would the prophecy savants say? They would coolly skip over our age of the world, and say, Smyrna was not faithful unto death, and so her crown of life was denied her. Ephesus repented, and, lo, her candlestick was not removed. Behold these evidences! How wonderful is prophecy! Smyrna has been utterly destroyed six times. If her crown of life had been an insurance policy, she would have had an opportunity to collect on it the first time she fell. But she holds it on sufferance, and by a complementary construction of language which does not refer to her. Six different times, however, 
I suppose some infatuated prophecy enthusiast blundered along and said, to the infinite disgust of Smyrna and the Smyrniotes, In sooth here is astounding fulfillment of prophecy. Smyrna hath not been faithful unto death, and behold her crown of life is vanished from her head. Verily these things be astonishing. Such things have a bad influence. They provoke worldly men into using light conversation concerning sacred subjects. Thick-headed commentators upon the Bible and stupid preachers and teachers work more damage to religion than sensible cool-brained clergymen can fight away again, toil as they may. It is not good judgment to fit a crown of life upon a city which has been destroyed six times. That other class of wiseacres, who twist prophecy in such a manner as to make it promise the destruction and desolation of the same city, use judgment just as bad, since the city is in a very flourishing condition now, unhappily for them. These things put arguments into the mouth of infidelity. A portion of the city is pretty exclusively Turkish. The Jews have a quarter to themselves, the Franks another quarter, so also with the Armenians. The Armenians, of course, are Christians. Their houses are large, clean, airy, handsomely paved with black and white squares of marble, and in the center of many of them is a square court which has in it a luxuriant flower-garden and a sparkling fountain. The doors of all the rooms open on this. A very wide hall leads to the street-door, and in this the women sit the most of the day. In the cool of the evening they dress up in their best raiment and show themselves at the door. They are all comely of countenance, and exceedingly neat and cleanly. They look as if they were just out of a bandbox. Some of the young ladies, many of them, I may say, are even very beautiful. They average a shade better than American girls, which treasonable words, I pray, may be forgiven me. They are very sociable, and will smile back when a stranger smiles at them, bow back when he bows, and talk back if he speaks to them. No introduction is required. An hour's chat at the door with a pretty girl one never saw before is easily obtained, and is very pleasant. I have tried it. I could not talk anything but English, and the girl knew nothing but Greek, or Armenian, or some such barbarous tongue, but we got along very well. I find that in cases like these the fact that you cannot comprehend each other isn't much of a drawback. In that Russian town of Yalta I danced an astonishing sort of a dance an hour long and one I had not heard of before, with a very pretty girl, and we talked incessantly, and laughed exhaustingly, and neither one ever knew what the other was driving at. But it was splendid! There were twenty people in the set, and the dance was very lively and complicated. It was complicated enough without me. With me it was more so. I threw in a figure now and then that surprised those Russians. But I have never ceased to think of that girl. I have written to her but I cannot direct the epistle, because her name is one of those nine-jointed Russian affairs, and there are not letters enough in our alphabet to hold out. I am not reckless enough to try to pronounce it when I am awake, but I make a stagger at it in my dreams, and get up with a lockjaw in the morning. I am fading. I do not take my meals now, with any sort of regularity. Her dear name haunts me still in my dreams. It is awful on teeth. It never comes out of my mouth, but it fetches an old snag along with it. And then the lockjaw closes down and nips off a couple of the last syllables, but they taste good. Coming through the Dardanelles we saw camel-trains on shore with glasses, but we were never close to one till we got to Smyrna. 
These camels are very much larger than the scrawny specimens one sees in the menagerie. They stride along these streets in single file, a dozen in a train, with heavy loads on their backs, and a fancy-looking negro in Turkish costume, or an Arab, preceding them on a little donkey, and completely overshadowed and rendered insignificant by the huge beasts. To see a camel-train laden with the spices of Arabia and the rare fabrics of Persia come marching through the narrow alleys of the bazaar, among porters with their burdens, money-changers, lamp-merchants, al-nashars in the glassware business, portly cross-legged Turks smoking the famous nargali, and the crowds drifting to and fro in the fanciful costumes of the East, is a genuine revelation of the Orient. The picture lacks nothing. It casts you back at once into your forgotten boyhood, and again you dream over the wonders of the Arabian Nights. Again your companions are princes, your lord is the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, and your servants are terrific giants and genii that come with smoke and lightning and thunder, and go as a storm goes when they depart. End of chapter 38 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 39. Smyrna's Lions. The Martyr Polycarp. The Seven Churches. Remains of the Six Smyrnas. Mysterious Oyster Mine Oysters. Seeking Scenery. A Millerite Tradition. A Railroad Out of Its Sphere. We inquired, and learned that the lions of Smyrna consisted of the ruins of the ancient citadel, whose broken and prodigious battlements frown upon the city from a lofty hill just in the edge of the town. The Mount Pegasus of Scripture, they call it. The site of that, one of the seven apocalyptic churches of Asia, which was located here in the first century of the Christian era, and the grave and the place of martyrdom of the venerable Polycarp who suffered in Smyrna for his religion some eighteen hundred years ago. We took little donkeys and started. We saw Polycarp's tomb, and then hurried on. The seven churches, thus they abbreviated, came next on the list. We rode there, about a mile and a half in the sweltering sun, and visited a little Greek church, which they said was built upon the ancient site, and we paid a small fee and the holy attendant gave each of us a little wax candle as a remembrance of the place. And I put mine in my hat, and the sun melted it, and the grease all ran down the back of my neck. And so now I have not anything left but the wick, and it is a sorry and wilted-looking wick at that. Several of us argued as well as we could that the church mentioned in the Bible meant a party of Christians, and not a building, that the Bible spoke of them as being very poor, so poor, I thought, and so subject to persecution, as were Polycarp's martyrdom, that in the first place they probably could not have afforded a church edifice, and in the second would not have dared to build it in the open light of day if they could, and finally, that if they had had the privilege of building it, common judgment would have suggested that they build it somewhere near the town. But the elders of the ship's family ruled us down and scouted our evidences. However, retribution came to them afterward. They found out that they had been led astray and had gone to the wrong place. They discovered that the accepted site is in the city. Riding through the town, we could see marks of the six Smyrnas that have existed here, and been burned up by fire or knocked down by earthquakes. 
The hills and the rocks are rent asunder in places. Excavations expose great blocks of building stone that have lain buried for ages, and all the mean houses and walls of modern Smyrna along the way are spotted white with broken pillars, capitals, and fragments of sculptured marble that once adorned the lordly palaces that were the glory of the city in the olden time. The ascent of the hill of the citadel is very steep, and we proceeded rather slowly. But there were matters of interest about us. In one place, five hundred feet above the sea, the perpendicular bank on the upper side of the road was ten or fifteen feet high, and the cut exposed three veins of oyster-shells, just as we have seen quartz veins exposed in the cutting of a road in Nevada or Montana. The veins were about eighteen inches thick and two or three feet apart and they slanted along downward for a distance of thirty feet or more, and then disappeared where the cut joined the road. Heaven only knows how far a man might trace them by stripping. They were clean, nice oyster-shells, large, and just like any other oyster-shells. They were thickly massed together, and none were scattered above or below the veins, each one a well-defined lead by itself and without a spur. My first instinct was to set up the usual notice. We, the undersigned, claim five claims of two hundred feet each, and one for discovery, on this ledge or load of oyster-shells, with all its dips, spurs, angles, variations, and sinuosities, and fifty feet on each side of the same, to work it, etc., etc., according to the mining laws of Smyrna. They were such perfectly natural-looking leads that I could hardly keep from taking them up. Among the oyster-shells were mixed many fragments of ancient broken crockery-ware. Now, how did those masses of oyster-shells get there? I cannot determine. Broken crockery and oyster-shells are suggestive of restaurants. But then, they could have had no such places away up there on that mountainside in our time, because nobody has lived up there. A restaurant would not pay in such a stony, forbidding, desolate place. And besides, there were no champagne corks among the shells. If there ever was a restaurant there, it must have been in Smyrna's palmy days, when the hills were covered with palaces. I could believe in one restaurant on those terms, but then how about the three? Did they have restaurants there at three different periods of the world? Because there are two or three feet of solid earth between the oyster leads. Evidently the restaurant solution will not answer. The hill might have been the bottom of the sea once, and been lifted up, with its oyster-beds, by an earthquake. But then how about the crockery? And, moreover, how about three oyster-beds, one above another, and thick strata of good honest earth between? That theory will not do. It is just possible that this hill is Mount Ararat, and that Noah's Ark rested here, and he ate oysters and threw the shells overboard. But that will not do, either. There are three layers again, and the solid earth between, and besides there were only eight in Noah's family, and they could not have eaten all these oysters in the two or three months they stayed on top of that mountain. The beasts, however, it is simply absurd to suppose he did not know any more than to feed the beasts on oyster suppers. It is painful, it is even humiliating, but I am reduced at last to one slender theory, that the oysters climbed up there on their own accord. But what object could they have had in view? What did they want up there? What could any oyster want to climb a hill for? To climb a hill must necessarily be fatiguing and annoying exercise for an oyster. The most natural conclusion would be that the oysters climbed up there to look at the scenery. 
Yet when one comes to reflect upon the nature of an oyster, it seems plain that he does not care for scenery. An oyster has no taste for such things. He cares nothing for the beautiful. An oyster is of a retiring disposition, and not lively, not even cheerful above the average, and never enterprising. But above all, an oyster does not take any interest in scenery. He scorns it. What have I arrived at now? Simply at the point I started from, namely, those oyster-shells are there, in regular layers, five hundred feet above the sea, and no man knows how they got there. I have hunted up the guide-books, and the gist of what they say is this. They are there, but how they got there is a mystery. Twenty-five years ago a multitude of people in America put on their ascension robes, took a tearful leave of their friends, and made ready to fly up into heaven at the first blast of the trumpet. But the angel did not blow it. Miller's resurrection day was a failure. The Millerites were disgusted. I did not suspect that there were Millers in Asia Minor, but a gentleman tells me that they had it all set for the world to come to an end in Smyrna one day about three years ago. There was much buzzing and preparation for a long time previously, and it culminated in a wild excitement at the appointed time. A vast number of the populace ascended the Citadel Hill early in the morning, to get out of the way of the general destruction, and many of the infatuated closed up their shops and retired from all earthly business. But the strange part of it was that, about three in the afternoon, while this gentleman and his friends were at dinner in the hotel, a terrific storm of rain, accompanied by thunder and lightning, broke forth and continued with dire fury for two or three hours. It was a thing unprecedented in Smyrna at the time of the year, and scared some of the most skeptical. The streets ran rivers, and the hotel floor was flooded with water. The dinner had to be suspended. When the storm finished and left, everybody drenched through and through, and melancholy and half-drowned, the ascensionists came down from the mountain as dry as so many charity sermons. They had been looking down upon the fearful storm going on below, and really believed that their proposed destruction of the world was proving a grand success. A railway here in Asia, in the dreamy realm of the Orient, in the fabled land of the Arabian Nights, is a strange thing to think of. And yet they have one already, and are building another. The present one is well built and well conducted by an English company, but is not doing an immense amount of business. The first year it carried a good many passengers, but its freight list only comprised eight hundred pounds of figs. It runs almost to the very gates of Ephesus, a town great in all ages of the world, a city familiar to readers of the Bible, and one which was as old as the very hills when the disciples of Christ preached in its streets. It dates back to the shadowy ages of tradition, and was the birthplace of gods renowned in Grecian mythology. The idea of a locomotive tearing through such a place as this, and waking the phantoms of its old days of romance out of their dreams of dead and gone centuries, is curious enough. We journey thither to-morrow to see the celebrated ruins. End of chapter 39 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 40 Journeying Toward Ancient Ephesus Ancient Ayasaluk The Villainous Donkey A Fantastic Procession Bygone Magnificence Fragments of History The Legend of the Seven Sleepers 
This has been a stirring day. The superintendent of the railway put a train at our disposal, and did us the further kindness of accompanying us to Ephesus, and giving to us his watchful care. We brought sixty scarcely perceptible donkeys in the freight-cars, for we had much ground to go over. We had seen some of the most grotesque costumes along the line of the railroad that can be imagined. I am glad that no possible combination of words could describe them, for I might then be foolish enough to attempt it. At ancient Ayasuluk, in the midst of a forbidding desert, we came upon long lines of ruined aqueducts, and other remnants of architectural grandeur, that told us plainly enough we were nearing what had been a metropolis once. We left the train and mounted the donkeys, along with our invited guests, pleasant young gentlemen from the officer's list of an American man-of-war. The little donkeys had saddles upon them which were made very high in order that the rider's feet might not drag the ground. The preventative did not work well in the cases of our tallest pilgrims, however. There were no bridles, nothing but a single rope tied to the bit. It was purely ornamental, for the donkey cared nothing for it. If he were drifting to starboard, you might put your helm down hard the other way, if it were any satisfaction to you to do it, but he would continue to drift to starboard all the same. There was only one process which could be depended on, and it was to get down and lift his rear around until his head pointed in the right direction, or take him under your arm and carry him to a part of the road which he could not get out of without climbing. The sun flamed down as hot as a furnace, and neck-scarves, veils, and umbrellas seemed hardly any protection. They served only to make the long procession look more than ever fantastic, for, be it known, the ladies were all riding astride, because they could not stay on the shapeless saddle sideways. The men were perspiring and out of temper, their feet were banging against the rocks, the donkeys were capering in every direction but the right one, and being belabored with clubs for it and every now and then a broad umbrella would suddenly go down out of the cavalcade, announcing to all that one more pilgrim had bitten the dust. It was a wilder picture than those solitudes had seen for many a day. No donkeys ever existed that were as hard to navigate as these, I think, or that had so many vile, exasperating instincts. Occasionally we grew so tired and breathless with fighting them that we had to desist and immediately the donkey would come down to a deliberate walk. This, with the fatigue and the sun, would put a man asleep, and soon as the man was asleep the donkey would lie down. My donkey shall never see his boyhood's home again. He has lain down once too often. He must die. We all stood in the vast theatre of ancient Ephesus, the stone-benched amphitheatre, I mean, and had our picture taken. We looked as proper there as we would look anywhere, I suppose. We do not embellish the general desolation of a desert much. We add what dignity we can to a stately ruin with our green umbrellas and jackasses, but it is little. However, we mean well. I wish to say a brief word of the aspect of Ephesus. On a high, steep hill toward the sea is a gray ruin of ponderous blocks of marble wherein, tradition says, St. Paul was imprisoned eighteen centuries ago. 
From these old walls you have the finest view of the desolate scene where once stood Ephesus, the proudest city of ancient times, and whose temple of Diana was so noble in design, and so exquisite of workmanship, that it ranked high in the list of the seven wonders of the world. Behind you is the sea, in front is a level green valley, a marsh, in fact, extending far away among the mountains. To the right of the front view is the old citadel of Ayasaluk, on a high hill. The ruined mosque of the Sultan Selim stands near it in the plain. This is built over the grave of St. John, and was formerly a Christian church. Further toward you is the hill of Pion, around whose front is clustered all that remains of the ruins of Ephesus that still stand. Divided from it by a narrow valley is the long, rocky, rugged mountain of Carissus. The scene is a pretty one, and yet desolate for in that wide plain no man can live, and in it is no human habitation. But for the crumbling arches and monstrous piers and broken walls that rise from the foot of the hill of Pion, one could not believe that in this place once stood a city whose renown is older than tradition itself. It is incredible to reflect that things as familiar all over the world to-day as household words belong in the history and in the shadowy legends of this silent, mournful solitude. We speak of Apollo and of Diana. They were born here. Of the metamorphosis of Syrinx into a reed, it was done here. Of the great god Pan, he dwelt in the caves of this hill of Carissus. Of the Amazons, this was their best prized home. Of Bacchus and Hercules, both fought the warlike women here. Of the Cyclops, they laid the ponderous marble blocks of some of the ruins yonder. Of Homer, this was one of his many birthplaces. Of Sermon of Athens, of Alcibiades, Lysander, Agesilaus, they visited here. So did Alexander the Great, so did Hannibal and Antiochus, Scipio, Lucullus and Scylla, Brutus, Cassius, Pompey, Cicero and Augustus. Antony was a judge in this place, and left his seat in the open court, while the advocates were speaking, to run after Cleopatra, who passed the door. From this city these two sailed on pleasure excursions, in galleys with silver oars and perfumed sails, and with companies of beautiful girls to serve them, and actors and musicians to amuse them. In days that seem almost modern, so remote are they from the early history of this city. Paul the Apostle preached the new religion here, and so did John, and here it is supposed the former was pitted against wild beasts, for in 1 Corinthians 15.32 he says, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, etc., when many men still lived who had seen the Christ, here Mary Magdalene died, and here the Virgin Mary ended her days with John, albeit Rome has since judged it best to locate her grave elsewhere. Six or seven hundred years ago, almost yesterday, as it were, troops of mail-clad crusaders thronged the streets, and to come down to trifles we speak of meandering streams, and find a new interest in a common word when we discover that the crooked river meander, in yonder valley, gave it to our dictionary. It makes me feel as old as these dreary hills to look down upon these moss-hung ruins, this historic desolation. One may read the scriptures and believe, but he cannot go and stand yonder in the ruined theatre and in imagination 
people it again with the vanished multitudes who mobbed Paul's comrades there and shouted with one voice, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! The idea of a shout in such a solitude as this almost makes one shudder. It was a wonderful city, this Ephesus. Go where you will about these broad plains, you find the most exquisitely sculptured marble fragments scattered thick among the dust and weeds, and protruding from the ground or lying prone upon it are beautiful fluted columns of porphyry and all precious marbles, and at every step you find elegantly carved capitals and massive bases and polished tablets engraved with Greek inscriptions. It is a world of precious relics, a wilderness of marred and mutilated gems. And yet what are these things to the wonders that lie buried here under the ground? At Constantinople, at Pisa, in the cities of Spain, are great mosques and cathedrals whose grandest columns came from the temples and palaces of Ephesus, and yet one has only to scratch the ground here to match them. We shall never know what magnificence is until this imperial city is laid bare to the sun. The finest piece of sculpture we have yet seen, and the one that impressed us most, for we do not know much about art, and cannot easily work up ourselves into ecstasies over it, is one that lies in this old theatre of Ephesus, which St. Paul's riot has made so celebrated. It is only the headless body of a man, clad in a coat of mail, with a medusa head upon the breastplate, but we feel persuaded that such dignity and such majesty were never thrown into a form of stone before. What builders they were, these men of antiquity! The massive arches of some of these ruins rest upon piers that are fifteen feet square and built entirely of solid blocks of marble, some of which are as large as a Saratoga trunk, and some of the size of a boarding-house sofa. They are not shells or shafts of stone filled inside with rubbish, but the whole pier is a mass of solid masonry. Vast arches that may have been the gates of the city are built in the same way. They have braved the storms and sieges of three thousand years, and have been shaken by many an earthquake, but still they stand. When they dig alongside of them, they find ranges of ponderous masonry that are as perfect in every detail as they were the day those old Cyclopean giants finished them. An English company is going to excavate Ephesus, and then! And now am I reminded of The Legend of the Seven Sleepers. In the Mount of Pion, yonder, is the Cave of the Seven Sleepers. Once upon a time, about fifteen hundred years ago, seven young men lived near each other in Ephesus, who belonged to the despised sect of the Christians. It came to pass that the good King Maximilianus—I am telling this story for nice little boys and girls—it came to pass, I say, that the good King Maximilianus fell to persecuting the Christians and as time rolled on he made it very warm for them. So the seven young men said one to the other, Let us get up and travel. And they got up and travelled. They tarried not to bid their fathers and mothers good-bye, or any friend they knew. They only took certain monies which their parents had, and garments that belonged unto their friends, whereby they might remember them when far away. And they took also the dog Ketmer, which was the property of their neighbor Malchus, because the beast did run his head into a noose, which one of the young men was carrying carelessly, and they had not time to release him. 
and they took also certain chickens that seemed lonely in the neighboring coops, and likewise some bottles of curious liquors that stood near the grocer's window, and then they departed from the city. By and by they came to a marvelous cave in the hill of Pion, and entered into it and feasted, and presently they hurried on again. But they forgot the bottles of curious liquors, and left them behind. They traveled in many lands, and had many strange adventures. They were virtuous young men, and lost no opportunity that fell in their way to make their livelihood. Their motto was in these words, namely, Procrastination is the thief of time. And so, whenever they did come upon a man who was alone, they said, Behold, this person hath the wherewithal, let us go through him. And they went through him. At the end of five years they had waxed tired of travel and adventure, and longed to revisit their old home again, and hear the voices, and see the faces that were dear unto their youth. Therefore they went through such parties as fell in their way where they sojourned at that time, and journeyed back towards Ephesus again. For the good king Maximilianus was become converted unto the new faith, and the Christians rejoiced because they were no longer persecuted. One day, as the sun went down, they came to the cave in the Mount of Pion, and they said each to his fellow, Let us sleep here, and go, and feast, and make merry with our friends when the morning cometh. And each of the seven lifted up his voice, and said, It is a whiz. So they went in, and lo, where they had put them, there lay the bottles of strange liquors, and they judged that age had not impaired their excellence wherein the wanderers were right, and the heads of the same were level. So each of the young men drank six bottles, and, behold, they felt very tired then, and lay down and slept soundly. When they awoke, one of them, Johannes, surnamed Smithianus, said, We are naked. And it was so. Their raiment was all gone, and the money which they had gotten from a stranger whom they had proceeded through as they approached the city, was lying upon the ground, corroded and rusted and defaced. Likewise the dog Ketmer was gone, and nothing save the brass that was upon his collar remained. They wondered much at these things, but they took the money, and they wrapped about their bodies some leaves, and came up to the top of the hill. Then were they perplexed. The wonderful temple of Diana was gone. Many grand edifices they had never seen before stood in the city. Men in strange garbs moved about the streets, and everything was changed. Johannes said, It hardly seems like Ephesus. Yet here is the great gymnasium, here is the mighty theatre, wherein I have seen seventy thousand men assembled. Here is the Agora, there is the font where the sainted John the Baptist immersed the converts. Yonder is the prison of the good St. Paul, where we all did use to go to touch the ancient chains that bound him, and be cured of our distempers. I see the tomb of the disciple Luke, and afar off is the church wherein repose the ashes of the holy John, where the Christians of Ephesus go twice a year to gather the dust from the tomb, which is able to make bodies whole again that are corrupted by disease, and cleanse the soul from sin. But we see how the wharves encroach upon the sea and what multitudes of ships are anchored in the bay! See also how the city hath stretched abroad, far over the valley, behind Pion, and even unto the walls of Ayasaluk. And, lo, all the hills are white with palaces, and ribbed with colonnades of marble! How mighty is Ephesus become! 
and wondering at what their eyes had seen, they went down into the city and purchased garments and clothed themselves. And when they would have passed on, the merchant bit the coins which they had given him, with his teeth, and turned them about and looked curiously upon them, and cast them upon his counter, and listened if they rang. And then he said, These be bogus. And they said, Depart thou to Hades, and went their way. When they were come to their houses, they recognized them, albeit they seemed old and mean, and they rejoiced and were glad. They ran to the doors and knocked, and strangers opened, and looked inquiringly upon them, and they said, with great excitement, while their hearts beat high, and the color in their faces came and went, Where is my father? Where is my mother? Where are Dionysius, and Serapion, and Pericles, and Decius? And the strangers that opened said, we know not these. The seven said, How you know them not? How long have ye dwelt here? And whither are they gone that dwelt here before ye? And the strangers said, Ye play upon us with a jest, young men. We and our fathers have sojourned under these roofs these six generations. The names ye utter wrought upon the tombs, and they that bore them have run their brief race, have laughed and sung, have borne the sorrows and the weariness that were allotted them, and are at rest. For nine score years the summers have come and gone, and the autumn leaves have fallen, since the roses faded out of their cheeks, and they laid them to sleep with the dead. Then the seven young men turned them away from their homes, and the strangers shut the doors upon them. The wanderers marveled greatly, and looked into the faces of all they met, as hoping to find one that they knew but all were strange, and passed them by, and spake no friendly word. They were sore distressed and sad. Presently they spake unto a citizen, and said, Who is king in Ephesus? And the citizen answered, and said, Whence come ye that ye know not that great Laertius reigns in Ephesus? They looked one at the other, greatly perplexed, and presently asked again, Where, then, is the good king Maximilianus? The citizen moved him apart, as one who is afraid, and said, Verily these men be mad, and dream dreams, else would they know that the king whereof they speak is dead above two hundred years agone. Then the scales fell from the eyes of the seven, and one said, Alas, that we drank of the curious liquors! They have made us weary, and in dreamless sleep these two long centuries have we lain. Our homes are desolate, our friends are dead. Behold, the jig is up, let us die. And that same day went they forth, and laid them down, and died. And in that self-same day, likewise, the seven up did cease in Ephesus, for that the seven that were up were down again, and departed, and dead withal. And the names that be upon their tombs, even unto this time, are Johannes Smithianus, Trumps, Gift, High, and Low, Jack, and The Game, and with the sleepers lie also the bottles wherein were once the curious liquors, and upon them is writ, in ancient letters, such words as these, dames of heathen gods of olden time, perchance, Rumpunch, Jizzling, Eggnog. Such is the story of the seven sleepers, with slight variations and I know it is true, because I have seen the cave myself. Really, so firm of faith had the ancients this legend, that as late as eight or nine hundred years ago learned travellers held it in superstitious fear. Two of them record that they ventured into it, but ran quickly out again, 
not daring to tarry lest they should fall asleep and outlive their great-grandchildren a century or so. Even at this day the ignorant denizens of the neighboring country prefer not to sleep in it. End of chapter 40 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 41 Vandalism Prohibited Angry Pilgrims Approaching Holy Land The Shrill Note of Preparation Distress About Dragomans and Transportation The Long Route Adopted In Syria Something About Beirut a choice specimen of Greek Ferguson. Outfits, hideous horseflesh, pilgrim style, what's of Aladdin's lamp? When I last made a memorandum, we were at Ephesus. We are in Syria now, encamped in the mountains of Lebanon. The interregnum has been long, both as to time and distance. We brought not a relic from Ephesus. After gathering up fragments of sculptured marbles, and breaking ornaments from the interior work of the mosques, and after bringing them at a cost of infinite trouble and fatigue, five miles on mule-back to the railway depot, a government officer compelled all who had such things to disgorge. He had an order from Constantinople to look out for our party, and see that we carried nothing off. It was a wise, a just, and a well-deserved rebuke, but it created a sensation. I never resist a temptation to plunder a stranger's premises without feeling insufferably vain about it. This time I felt proud beyond expression. I was serene in the midst of the scoldings that were heaped upon the Ottoman government for its affront offered to a pleasuring party of entirely respectable gentlemen and ladies, I said, We that have free souls, it touches us not. The shoe not only pinched our party, but it pinched hard. A principal sufferer discovered that the imperial order was enclosed in an envelope bearing the seal of the British Embassy at Constantinople, and therefore must have been inspired by the representative of the Queen. This was bad, very bad. Coming solely from the Ottomans, it might have signified only Ottoman hatred of Christians, and a vulgar ignorance as to genteel methods of expressing it. But coming from the Christianized, educated, politic British legation, it simply intimated that we were a sort of gentlemen and ladies who would bear watching. So the party regarded it, and were incensed accordingly. The truth, doubtless, was that the same precautions would have been taken against any travellers, because the English company who have acquired the right to excavate Ephesus, and have paid a great sum for that right, need to be protected, and deserve to be. They cannot afford to run the risk of having their hospitality abused by travellers, especially since travellers are such notorious scorners of honest behaviour. We sailed from Smyrna, in the wildest spirit of expectancy, for the chief feature, the grand goal of the expedition, was near at hand. We were approaching the Holy Land. Such a burrowing into the hold for trunks that had lain buried for weeks, yes, for months! Such a hurrying to and fro above decks and below! such a riotous system of packing and unpacking, such a littering up of the cabins with shirts and skirts, and indescribable and unclassable odds and ends, such a making up of bundles, and setting apart of umbrellas, green spectacles, and thick veils, such a critical inspection of saddles and bridles that had never yet touched horses, such a cleaning and loading of revolvers, and examining of bowie-knives, 
such a half-soling of the seats of pantaloons with serviceable buckskin, then such a poring over ancient maps, such a reading up of Bibles and Palestine travels, such a marking out of routes, such exasperating efforts to divide up the company into little bands of congenial spirits who might make the long and arduous journey without quarrelling, and, morning, noon, and night, such mass-meetings in the cabins, such speech-making, such sage-suggesting, such worrying and quarrelling, and such a general raising of the very mischief, was never seen in the ship before. But it is all over now. We are cut up into parties of six or eight, and by this time are scattered far and wide. Ours is the only one, however, that is venturing on what is called the long trip, that is, out into Syria by Baalbek to Damascus, and thence down through the full length of Palestine. It would be a tedious and also a too risky journey at this hot season of the year for any but strong, healthy men accustomed somewhat to fatigue and rough life in the open air. The other parties will take shorter journeys. For the last two months we have been in a worry about one portion of this Holy Land pilgrimage. I refer to transportation service. We knew very well that Palestine was a country which did not do a large passenger business, and every man we came across who knew anything about it gave us to understand that not half of our company would be able to get dragomen and animals. At Constantinople everybody fell to telegraphing the American consuls at Alexandria and Beirut to give notice that we wanted dragomen and transportation. We were desperate, would take horses, jackasses, camelopards, kangaroos, anything. At Smyrna more telegraphing was done, to the same end. Also fearing for the worst, we telegraphed for a large number of seats in the diligence for Damascus, and horses for the ruins of Baalbek. As might have been expected, a notion got abroad in Syria and Egypt that the whole population of the province of America—the Turks consider us a trifling little province in some unvisited corner of the world—were coming to the Holy Land. And so, when we got to Beirut yesterday, we found the place full of dragomen and their outfits. We had all intended to go by diligence to Damascus, and switch off to Baalbek as we went along, because we expected to rejoin the ship, go to Mount Carmel, and take to the woods from there. However, when our own private party of eight found that it was possible, and proper enough, to make the long trip, we adopted that program. We have never been much trouble to a consul before, but we have been a fearful nuisance to our consul at Beirut. I mention this because I cannot help admiring his patience, his industry, and his accommodating spirit. I mention it also because I think some of our ship's company did not give him as full credit for his excellent services as he deserved. Well, out of our eight, three were selected to attend to all business connected with the expedition. The rest of us had nothing to do but look at the beautiful city of Beirut, with its bright, new houses nestled among a wilderness of green shrubbery spread abroad over an upland that sloped gently down to the sea, and also at the mountains of Lebanon that environ it, and likewise to bathe in the transparent blue water that rolled its billows about the ship. We did not know there were sharks there. We had also to range up and down through the town and look at the costumes. These are picturesque and fanciful, but not so varied as at Constantinople and Smyrna. The women of Beirut add an agony. In the two former cities the sex wear a thin veil which one can see through, and they often expose their ankles. 
but at Beirut they cover their entire faces with dark-colored or black veils, so that they look like mummies, and then expose their breasts to the public. A young gentleman—I believe he was a Greek—volunteered to show us around the city, and said it would afford him great pleasure, because he was studying English and wanted practice in that language. When we had finished the rounds, however, he called for remuneration said he hoped the gentleman would give him a trifle in the way of a few piastres, equivalent to a few five-cent pieces. We did so. The consul was surprised when he heard it, and said he knew the young fellow's family very well, and that they were an old and highly respectable family, and worth a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Some people so situated would have been ashamed of the birth he had with us, and his manner of crawling into it. At the appointed time our business committee reported, and said all things were in readiness, that we were to start to-day, with horses, pack-animals, and tents, and go to Baalbek, Damascus, the Sea of Tiberias, and thence southward by the way of the scene of Jacob's dream and other notable Bible localities, to Jerusalem, from thence probably to the Dead Sea, but possibly not, and then strike for the ocean and rejoin the ship, three or four weeks hence, at Joppa. Terms, five dollars a day apiece, in gold, and everything to be furnished by the dragoman. They said we would lie as well as at a hotel. I had read something like that before, and did not shame my judgment by believing a word of it. I said nothing, however, but packed up a blanket and a shawl to sleep in, pipes and tobacco, two or three woolen shirts, a portfolio, a guide-book, and a Bible. I also took along a towel and a cake of soap, to inspire respect in the Arabs, who would take me for a king in disguise. We were to select our horses at three p.m. At that hour Abraham, the dragoman, marshalled them before us. With all solemnity I set it down here, that those horses were the hardest lot I ever did come across, and their accoutrements were in exquisite keeping with their style. One brute had an eye out, another had his tail sawed off close, like a rabbit, and was proud of it. Another had a bony ridge running from his neck to his tail, like one of those ruined aqueducts one sees about Rome, and had a neck on him like a bowsprit. They all limped, and had sore backs, and likewise raw places, and old scales scattered about their persons, like brass nails in a hair-trunk. Their gates were marvellous to contemplate, and replete with variety, underway the procession looked like a fleet in a storm. It was fearful. Blucher shook his head, and said, "'That dragon is going to get himself into trouble fetching these old crates out of the hospital the way they are, unless he has got a permit.' I said nothing. The display was exactly according to the guide-book, and were we not travelling by the guide-book? I selected a certain horse, because I thought I saw him shy, and I thought that a horse that had spirit enough to shy was not to be despised. At six o'clock p.m. we came to a halt here, on the breezy summit of a shapely mountain overlooking the sea, and the handsome valley where dwelt some of those enterprising Phoenicians of ancient times we read so much about. All around us are what were once the dominions of Hiram, king of Tyre, who furnished timber from the cedars of these Lebanon hills to build portions of King Solomon's temple with. Shortly after six our pack-train arrived. I had not seen it before and a good right I had to be astonished. We had nineteen serving-men and twenty-six pack-mules. It was a perfect caravan. It looked like one, too, as it wound among the rocks. I wondered what in the very mischief we wanted with such a vast turnout as that for eight men. I wondered a while, but soon I began to long for a tin plate and some bacon and beans. 
I had camped out many and many a time before, and knew just what was coming. I went off, without waiting for serving men, and unsaddled my horse, and washed such portions of his ribs and his spine as projected through his hide, and when I came back, behold, five stately circus tents were up, tents that were brilliant within with blue and gold and crimson and all manner of splendid adornment. I was speechless. Then they brought eight little iron bedsteads, and set them up in the tents. They put a soft mattress and pillows and good blankets and two snow-white sheets on each bed. Next they rigged a table about the center pole, and on it placed pewter pitchers, basins, soap, and the whitest of towels, one set for each man. They pointed to pockets in the tent, and said we could put our small trifles in them for convenience, and if we needed pins or such things, they were sticking everywhere. Then came the finishing touch. They spread carpets on the floor. I simply said, if you call this camping out, all right, but it isn't the style I am used to. My little baggage that I brought along is at a discount. It grew dark, and they put candles on the tables, candles set in bright new brazen candlesticks, and soon the bell, a genuine Simon-pure bell, rang, and we were invited to the saloon. I had thought before that we had a tent or so too many, but now here was one at least provided for. It was to be used for nothing but an eating saloon. Like the others, it was high enough for a family of giraffes to live in, and was very handsome and clean and bright-colored within. It was a gem of a place. A table for eight, and eight canvas chairs. A tablecloth and napkins whose whiteness and whose fineness laughed to scorn the things we were used to in the great excursion steamer. Knives and forks, soup-plates, dinner-plates, everything, in the handsomest kind of style. It was wonderful, and they call this camping out. Those stately fellows in baggy trousers and turbaned fezes brought in a dinner which consisted of roast mutton, roast chicken, roast goose, potatoes, bread, tea, pudding, apples, and delicious grapes. The viands were better cooked than any we had eaten for weeks, and the table made a finer appearance, with its large German silver candlesticks and other finery, than any table we had sat down to for a good while. And yet that plight dragoman, Abraham, came bowing in and apologizing for the whole affair, on account of the unavoidable confusion of getting under way for a very long trip and promising to do a great deal better in future. It is midnight now, and we break camp at six in the morning. They call this camping out. At this rate, it is a glorious privilege to be a pilgrim to the Holy Land. End of chapter 41 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE INNOCENTS ABROAD by Mark Twain CHAPTER 42 JACKSONVILLE IN THE MOUNTAINS OF LEBANON BREAKFASTING ABOVE A GRAND PANORAMA THE VANISHED CITY THE PECULIAR STEED JERICHO THE PILGRIM'S PROGRESS BIBLE SCENES MOUNT HERMON JOSHUA'S BATTLEFIELDS, ETC. THE TOMB OF NOAH A MOST UNFORTUNATE PEOPLE We are camped near Temnin el Foca a name which the boys have simplified a good deal, for the sake of convenience in spelling. They call it Jacksonville. It sounds a little strangely here in the valley of Lebanon, but it has the merit of being easier to remember than the Arabic name. Come like spirits, so depart. 
the night shall be filled with music and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like arabs and as silently steal away i slept very soundly last night yet when the dragoman's bell rang at half-past five this morning and the cry went abroad of ten minutes to dress for breakfast i heard both it surprised me because i have not heard the breakfast gong in the ship for a month and whenever we have had occasion to fire a salute at daylight i have only found it out in the course of conversation afterward however camping out even though it be in a gorgeous tent makes one fresh and lively in the morning especially if the air you are breathing is the cool fresh air of the mountains i was dressed within the ten minutes and came out the saloon tent had been stripped of its sides and had nothing left but its roof so when we sat down to table we could look out over a noble panorama of mountain sea and hazy valley and sitting thus the sun rose slowly up and suffused the picture with a world of rich coloring hot mutton-chops fried chicken omelettes fried potatoes and coffee all excellent this was the bill of fare it was sauced with a savage appetite purchased by hard riding the day before and refreshing sleep in a pure atmosphere as i called for a second cup of coffee i glanced over my shoulder and behold our white village was gone the splendid tents had vanished like magic it was wonderful how quickly those arabs had folded their tents and it was wonderful also how quickly they had gathered the thousand odds and ends of the camp together and disappeared with them by half-past six we were under way and all the syrian world seemed to be under way also the road was filled with mule trains and long processions of camels this reminds me that we have been trying for some time to think what a camel looks like and now we have made it out when he is down on all his knees flat on his breast to receive his load he looks something like a goose swimming and when he is upright he looks like an ostrich with an extra set of legs camels are not beautiful and their long underlip gives them an exceedingly gallous excuse this slang no other word will describe it expression they have immense flat forked cushions of feet that make a track in the dust like a pie with a slice cut out of it they are not particular about their diet they would eat a tombstone if they could bite it a thistle grows about here which has needles on it that would pierce through leather i think if one touches you you can find relief in nothing but profanity the camels eat these they show by their actions that they enjoy them i suppose it would be a real treat to a camel to have a keg of nails for supper while i am speaking of animals i will mention that i have a horse now by the name of jericho he is a mare i have seen remarkable horses before but none so remarkable as this i wanted a horse that could shy and this one fills the bill i had an idea that shying indicated a spirit if i was correct i have got the most spirited horse on earth he shies at everything he comes across with the utmost impartiality he appears to have a mortal dread of telegraph poles especially and it is fortunate that these are on both sides of the road because as it is now i never fall off twice in succession on the same side if i fell on the same side always it would get to be monotonous after a while this creature has scared at everything he has seen to-day except a haystack he walked up to that with an intrepidity and a recklessness that were astonishing and it would fill any one with admiration to see how he preserves his self-possession in the presence of a barley-sack this dare-devil bravery will be the death of this horse some day he is not particularly fast 
but I think he will get me through the Holy Land. He has only one fault. His tail has been chopped off, or else he has sat down on it too hard, some time or other, and he has to fight the flies with his heels. This is all very well, but when he tries to kick a fly off the top of his head with his hind foot, it is too much variety. He is going to get himself into trouble that way some day. He reaches around and bites my legs, too. I do not care particularly about that, only I do not like to see a horse too sociable. I think the owner of this prize had a wrong opinion about him. He had an idea that he was one of those fiery, untamed steeds, but he is not of that character. I know the Arab had this idea, because when he brought the horse out for inspection in Beirut, he kept jerking at the bridle and shouting in Arabic, "'Ho, will you? Do you want to run away, you ferocious beast, and break your neck?' when all the time the horse was not doing anything in the world, and only looked like he wanted to lean up against something and think. Whenever he is not shying at things, or reaching after a fly, he wants to do that yet. How it would surprise his owner to know this! We have been in a historical section of country all day. At noon we camped three hours and took luncheon at Mexe, near the junction of the Lebanon Mountains, and the Jebel el Kuneise, and look down into the immense level garden-like valley of Lebanon. Tonight we are camping near the same valley, and have a very wide sweep of it in view. We can see the long, whale-backed ridge of Mount Hermon projecting above the eastern hills. The dews of Hermon are falling upon us now, and the tents are almost soaked with them. Over the way from us, and higher up the valley, we can discern through the glasses the faint outlines of the wonderful ruins of Baalbek, the supposed Baal-god of Scripture. Joshua and another person were the two spies who were sent into this land of Canaan by the children of Israel to report upon its character. I mean, they were the spies who reported favorably. They took back with them some specimens of the grapes of this country and in the children's picture-books they are always represented as bearing one monstrous bunch swung to a pole between them, a respectable load for a pack-train. The Sunday-school books exaggerated it a little. The grapes are most excellent to this day, but the bunches are not as large as those in the pictures. I was surprised and hurt when I saw them, because those colossal bunches of grapes were one of my most cherished juvenile traditions. Joshua reported favorably, and the children of Israel journeyed on, with Moses at the head of the general government, and Joshua in command of the army of six hundred thousand fighting men. Of women and children and civilians there was a countless swarm. Of all that mighty host, none but the two faithful spies ever lived to set their feet in the promised land. They and their descendants wandered forty years in the desert, and then Moses, the gifted warrior, poet, statesman, and philosopher, went up into Pisgah and met his mysterious fate. Where he was buried no man knows, for no man dug that sepulchre, and no man saw it e'er, for the sons of God upturned the sod, and laid the dead man there. Then Joshua began his terrible raid, and from Jericho clear to this Baal-god he swept the land like the genius of destruction. He slaughtered the people, laid waste their soil, and razed their cities to the ground. He wasted thirty-one kings also. One may call it that, though really it can hardly be called wasting them, because there were always plenty of kings in those days, and to spare. At any rate, he destroyed thirty-one kings, and divided up their realm among his Israelites. He divided up this valley stretched out here before us, and so it was once Jewish territory. The Jews have long since disappeared from it, however. 
Back yonder, an hour's journey from here, we pass through an Arab village of stone dry-goods boxes, they look like that, where Noah's tomb lies under lock and key. Noah built the ark. Over these old hills and valleys the ark that contained all that was left of a vanished world once floated. I make no apology for detailing the above information. It will be news to some of my readers, at any rate. Noah's tomb is built of stone, and is covered with a long stone building. Bukshish let us in. The building had to be long, because the grave of the honored old navigator is two hundred and ten feet long itself. It is only about four feet high, though. He must have cast a shadow like a lightning-rod. The proof that this is the genuine spot where Noah was buried can only be doubted by uncommonly incredulous people. The evidence is pretty straight. Shem, the son of Noah, was present at the burial, and showed the place to his descendants, who transmitted the knowledge to their descendants, and the lineal descendants of these introduced themselves to us to-day. It was pleasant to make the acquaintance of members of so respectable a family. It was a thing to be proud of. It was the next thing to being acquainted with Noah himself. Noah's memorable voyage will always possess a living interest for me henceforward. If ever an oppressed race existed, it is this one we see fettered around us under the inhuman tyranny of the Ottoman Empire. I wish Europe would let Russia annihilate Turkey a little, not much, but enough to make it difficult to find the place again without a divining-rod or a diving-bell. The Syrians are very poor, and yet they are ground down by a system of taxation that would drive any other nation frantic. Last year their taxes were heavy enough, in all conscience, but this year they have been increased by the addition of taxes that were forgiven them in times of famine in former years. On top of this the government has levied a tax of one-tenth of the whole proceeds of the land. This is only half the story. The paka of a pakalik does not trouble himself with appointing tax-collectors. He figures up what all these taxes ought to amount to in a certain district. Then he farms the collection out. He calls the rich men together, the highest bidder gets the speculation, pays the paka on the spot, and then sells out to smaller fry, who sell in turn to a piratical horde of still smaller fry. These latter compel the peasant to bring his little trifle of grain to the village at his own cost. It must be weighed, the various taxes set apart, and the remainder returned to the producer. But the collector delays this duty day after day while the producer's family are perishing for bread. At last the poor wretch, who cannot but understand the game, says, "'Take a quarter, take half, take two-thirds, if you will, and let me go!' It is a most outrageous state of things. These people are naturally good-hearted and intelligent, and with education and liberty would be a happy and contented race. They often appealed to the stranger to know if the great world will not some day come to their relief and save them. The Sultan has been lavishing money like water in England and Paris, but his subjects are suffering for it now. This fashion of camping out bewilders me. We have boot-jacks and a bath-tub now, and yet all the mysteries the pack-mules carry are not revealed. What next? End of chapter 42 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.